VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, November the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's produced the command with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 86. 26, so Black Friday shopping today for folks hunting for a deal. We know that times are tight and people are struggling, but of course, so says the Retail Council of Canada. Atlantic Canadians are especially generous during the Christmas season. Not my numbers, that's their numbers. But there are some deals out there to be had as we all try to pinch a few pennies leading into the Christmas season, little Black Friday action. And of course, yesterday with the American Thanksgiving, you know, it's Thanksgiving, turkey, and football. I know Dave Williams is a massive NFL fan. I don't know if you watched any of the uh, Dallas Cowboys game yesterday as they host the Washington Commanders and popped them 45-10. But the halftime show, Dolly Parton at 77 is still going especially strong. Amazing performance by Dolly. And I mean, who doesn't like Dolly Parton, right? And, you know, I don't go with celebrity birthdays here on the show, but it always strikes me when I see that it's Pete Best's birthday, 82 years old today. Pete Best was the original drummer hired by the Beatles, performing Hamburg and in England. Just think about a life lost. So eventually replaced by Ringo Starr. We know the Fab Four. And Pete Best at one point was sitting in that stool or on that stool as a drummer for the Beatles, one of the most legendary bands of all time. And of course, Pete, uh, Pete in the dustbin of history, so to speak. Also on this date, published 164 years ago, British naturalist and geologist Charles Darwin published uh, The Origin of Species. Talk about the theory of evolution, of course. At the time, given some of the church, uh, church teachings, this was rebuffed in full. Eventually, the Vatican made a statement in 1950, said that evolution was consistent with the Catholic pre- teachings, and Darwin himself is a uh, God-fearing or God-faithful uh, member of the Catholic Church. He went on to say that his theory of evolution usurped his thoughts about creationism. So anyway, on the Origin of Species, published on this day in history in 1859. All right, good luck to all the uh, CrossFit athletes, some six of them competing in the seventh edition of the Rock Games. They're adding, on top of the five events, adding the strong man and strong woman competition. That type of training is especially intense. That's three or four times I said especially already. (laughs) It's really intense, so good luck to all participants in the Games. Uh, So Canada at the Davis Cup, of course, defending champions went in and out with a whimper. Lost to Finland in the tiebreaker 2-1. Milos Raonic on his swan song tour looked really good in the singles match, but Canada out as defending champions, going to have to wait another year. And as we talk about the amount of money for prize money or salaries for professional athletes, just a a quick one here. 1991, Monica Seles set a female tennis record winning prize money for the season, $2.4 million. If you won the U.S. Open Tennis Championship, this year, you won $3 million for one event. And the record set in 1991 was 2.4 for the entire season. Okay, let's go. So we know yesterday, as it's reported in the news, the wealthiest, most influential people in the province gathered down a Kitty Vitty at the brewery to begin the Canada-EU summit. All right. 
So in addition to the folks, the muckety-mucks inside, there was a protest. So dozens of people showed up to protest the ongoing conflict, the Israel and Gaza, calling for a ceasefire, actually talking for politicians to be uh, charged and for uh, treason, and pardon, my, not, pardon me, genocide. So it's a complicated matter, as we all know. Sometime this morning begins the four-day pause, the ceasefire, the exchange of hostages and prisoners. If you want to take on that particular conflict and offer your thoughts on it, we're happy to talk about it, but it is just devastating to see some of the pictures and the stories coming from the Middle East. Also, I guess, you know, an interesting story shared by Ursula von der Leyen, given the fact that she's got some sort of relationship with this province. Apparently, on 9-11, her husband was in the air and was eventually grounded in Gander. So hours on end waiting for a call from her husband. So that's an interesting relationship with the province. As a matter of fact, the godmother of my oldest son was in New York City on 9-11, and we went hours waiting to hear from her. She was then Jennifer Moutard, now Jennifer Melanson. But anyway, I'm sure you cared about that. All right. So on the agenda are a bevy of items. You know, people in this province wondering what kind of conversation will be beyond greener energy, the whole hydrogen export to Germany, which seems to be a real keen focus, no question. So they'll get at it today in a little more detailed fashion versus the party aspect of last night. So Ben Cleary from NTV actually got the premier to mention the concept of seals and the ban of seal, most seal products into the European Union. Uh, premier Fury actually wearing his seal skin coat last night at the event. If that's of interest to you, we're happy to take it on. But in the world of greener energy and green hydrogen, lots of concerns still remain in many pockets of the province, especially on the uh, port port Peninsula. And you talk about where hydrogen is going in this world. I read a story yesterday that Ontario, the provincial government, investing some six million dollars into a hydrogen play but their play is blending hydrogen with natural gas as part of the I guess the move towards a reduction in emissions on their electrical grid but Ontario getting in on it as well okay let's keep going so we all know the unfortunate story regarding a week-long shutdown at Kruger's operations at the Cornerbrook pulp and paper mill the last paper mill in the province and of course the dwindling prospects for newsprint, the conversation surrounding potentially to diversify their product offerings, but inside that world, and we talked about it when this story first broke, is that back in 2014, then Premier Tom Marshall extended a $110 million loan to Kruger. Now I see Terry Roberts reporting on it that the balance now stands at $117 million. So. There was supposed to be a payment on March 31st. That hasn't happened. The last time there were any payments was in 2019, where they made three payments. The requirement is a quarterly loan payment of $1.85 million. And that has not happened for years. Interest rate of 4.55%, which now means that the Kruger owes the government some $117.2 million. Now, it's secured by a mortgage over the, co- the, the power assets belonging to Kruger. So Deer Lake Power, Watson Brooks Power Plant, and the company's water rights. The province has not triggered any default mechanisms, given the fact that Kruger has not made payments, basically saying that given the precarious position the mill finds itself in, it would further hamper potential of uh, operations because of a trigger of a default on this particular loan. So we know the concerns that they're talking about. People are told not to press the panic button too quickly here. There is, obviously, from Kruger themselves, the the concept that there might be future shutdowns and the impact for some 300 full-time jobs at Kruger's operations, but the monies we 
were wondering where the balance stood, but apparently it's at $117.2 million as of the 31st of March of this year. Okay. They talk about, you know, contributions of $50 million to the provincial economy with the operations there. In addition to the loan, and that's not the only money the province has put into those operations, $70 million into Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper since 2010 for a bunch of upgrades and various initiatives. Also in 2017, the province provided a guarantee of up to $88 million uh, related to the company's pension plan deficit. So Kruger will see what the future holds, and I hope to be optimistic about the viability long term for their operations, but you want to take it on, especially if you're on the province's west coast. Let's do exactly that. We had Gordon Piercy on from the Association of Allied Health Professionals some while ago talk about the ongoing negotiations, collective bargaining with the province. It's the only health-related union to not strike a new contract with the employer. So the thought about job action and the, the, the talk is growing and getting louder and more relentless. So they represent a bunch of different extremely important healthcare professionals. Some uh, thousand psychologists, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, audiologists, mental health counselors, social workers. So they walked away from the bargaining table uh, some while back. And now there has been a conciliation process that was supposed to begin but has not started as of yet. So now they're talking about the equal pay for equal pay for work of equal value, can't strike a contract, people are going to private sector offerings, whether it be for physiotherapy or otherwise, paying some 80 to $90 per hour, given the long wait list in the public system. And I've got someone at me via email all the time talking about the expansion of more and more private health care in the country, and that is a concern for many, maybe not for you, you know, the concept of freeing up the public queue for folks who can afford it to go to the private offerings, to get an MRI, to get a hip replacement, a, a knee replacement, or what have you. So, Anyway, Allied Health Professionals, if Mr. Percy is available this morning, we'll see if we can't get any details as to where they are on that particular file. That's problematic to say the very least. Yesterday, we had Minister Pam Parsons on the program talking about the Purple Ribbon Campaign. 16 days of activism to talk about an awareness of domestic violence, far too prevalent in this province. You know, what we didn't get to is not only talk about awareness campaigns and events throughout these 16 days, but how do you address such a traumatic issue with young people? Because when there's the concept of respect and self-respect and to understand that domestic violence is very real and very prevalent in the province, how do we actually incorporate those types of very tricky emotional conversations with the province's youth in the school system itself? And then I don't know if you remember back to the circumstances surrounding Julianne Hibbs and her murder in 2013. I remember it vividly. So Julianne at the time was 35 years old. She was murdered in the parking lot of a, or was it in the parking lot or inside the health clinic out there in Conception Bay South? She was also with her fiance at the time, Vince Dillon. Her ex-boyfriend, a fellow named Brian Daw, shot and killed both of them before he went to a nearby cemetery and killed himself. When Debbie Hibbs, Julianne's mother, talks about this, and of course you can't imagine the extraordinary grief associated with losing a child. But she tells the story of how Julianne was basically under the complete control of Brian Dawes since the age of 15. No, uh, unable to see her parents, unable to see her friends. Brian Daw even went to the school to talk about the fact that he did not want Julianne to be able to speak with her parents or anybody else. So she was completely controlled by Brian Daw. 
Debbie Hibbs continues to talk about, and she's absolutely right in my personal opinion, to talk about legislative change so there can be some intervention by law enforcement if someone under the age of 19 is in that type of circumstance. Extraordinarily sad story, Julianne Hibbs. And then, of course, we heard from Glenda Power talking about uh, Courtney Lake and her disappearance and the investigation into what people think is her murder. And that story also should be kept on the front burner. But for these 16 days of activism, hope there's some attention given to the issue here and all the legislative changes that are required, including what Debbie Hibbs is promoting. And I think she's right. And then, you know, we talk about the importance of things like Claire's Law, which has now been passed through the House of Assembly and Royal Assent granted. People have the op- opportunity to find out if their intimate partner uh, has a track record or a past regarding domestic violence. So it's a big topic, and we know it's difficult to talk about, but I think it's totally worth it. How are we doing out there this morning, David? Okay, let's get a couple of quick ones going before we move out to your call. So, for years, I believe the concept was launched back in 2014 to raise money to open the province's first hospice care facility, and it now has been open as of yesterday. The Lionel Kellen Hospice opened in Grand Falls, Windsor. So it's a 10-bed hospice care. So there's a vast difference between hospice care and palliative care. I believe we're anticipating a call from people behind the Lionel Kellen uh, Hospice here this morning. So three healthcare workers in particular really dug in and made this happen. So pharmacist Ken Dix, Dr. John Campbell, and Dr. Jeff Cole, they put the effort along with their team, their effort in fundraising, which was uber successful. It's amazing the amount of money they raised. So we're going to talk about the difference between hospice care and palliative care. And of course, the building was donated by the Presentation Sisters back in 2016. And it's more... It's more of a holistic approach to treating the symptoms versus what feels like very much institutional care in palliative care settings. And, of course, it's all named after Lionel Kelland, uh, the late Lionel Kelland, and some of his family were in attendance yesterday. And, of course, pretty cool for them to see their father's name as the facility's namesake. So the Lionel Kelland Hospice. Now, as it is the first one in the province, the thought is there will be more to follow because the... Care in the later stages of life, whether it be by paramedics in the home or palliative care at the Miller Center, for instance, or in hospices like the Lionel Kellen Center, it's certainly a conversation that is, again, you know, some of the conversations that we have to have are really maybe awkward, certainly traumatic and emotional, but all the while important. All right, we're going to get to the calls quicker than usual here this morning. Uh, just a quick reminder, though, for many people who kick off the Christmas season with Dial a Carol, it happens this Sunday, right here on VOCM at uh, 1 p.m. If you'd like to request a carol or a hymn or a tune, you can do so. Just go to VOCMcares.com, make a donation, request a song. We get them from all over the country every single year. So I'll be with you here on one, uh, 1 p.m. on Sunday with Greg Smith to kick off Dial a Carol. And, of course, the downtown Santa Claus Parade here in the city of St. John's on Sunday beginning at noon as well. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great Friday show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. So Dave's just trying to get a couple of the callers organized there that are in the queue. I'll just wait for David to pull the trigger so I can get it going. So, you know, the mention of the Canada-EU summit, and there's a lot of things on the agenda. Of course there are. So whether it be inside the world of clean energy and biodiversity and innovation and technology, it's remarkable. Like, I don't know where the whole SEAL conversation goes from here on out. There's many people out there think that the issue is pretty much beaten to you-know-what. But when we think about the strength of the cod stock, when we think about biodiversity, when we think about trade, you know, not to put an agenda item in there that will see no traction, but it's 
I think, completely worthwhile to have it as part of the discussions. Why not? If we're talking trade, and in the world of trade, and how, say, for instance, the fishery has been used in this country as a bit of a diplomatic tool, can it not be applied to this whole conversation regarding the importance, we're told, of the deep sea ports and the wind and the water here in this country, or pardon me, in this province, to create green hydrogen for use elsewhere? I mean, I think that's one of the complicating factors with these projects or proposals anyway, is that it's not for domestic use. So there's a lot of moving parts, of course, when we talk about trade. And also inside of the Canada-EU summit, is there going to be any discussion with the two vacant NAFO seats? Now, NAFO has proven to be a pretty toothless organization, albeit remains important, but there's two vacant seats. Where will that conversation go as they congregate in the city of St. John's for the remainder of today? All right, let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Doing okay. How about you? Good. I just wanted to call in about Tent City again, and um, mainly because I was pretty alarmed at some recent information that I uh, that I got about uh, a committee that had formed early in the days of the Confederation building Tent City protest. Um, this was a, a few organizations, um, the city and the province, um, from what I understand, that, that have, were involved with this. And the reason I'm you know, I got to say, I'm, I'm incredibly disappointed that this committee, which uh, you know is, is infrastructure, it is a group of people that are knowledgeable or that are professionals about this, and I'm, I'm disappointed that they have not stepped up to assist folks, volunteers who are working at the Ten City at Colonial. Okay. Okay. You still there, Patty? I'm listening. So this is a committee of, like I said, this is a committee of professionals. Um, I just learned this uh, two days ago that this group existed. Um, We've been sort of shouting into the wilderness about how we need help down there. We need people to step in to find homes for these folks. And if homes are not available, if shelters are not suitable, um, then we need some kind of temporary structures. We just can't, you know, we're all very nervous and afraid that folks are are just going to freeze. So what are you suggesting? Because, I mean, I've heard people talk about trappers, tents, and maybe some of the tents, the facilities used by, for instance, the Canadian Armed Forces. People talking about buying and building small sheds or what have you. So what are you suggesting? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're now into the stage where we're looking at other, what other places are doing. Uh, I spoke with one of the councillors there in Peterborough the other day about the 50 units that they're that they've put up it's a modular structure it's it's um they're built by a company called now um in ontario i believe um there are structures emergency structures in nova scotia that we're looking at these are these are eight by eight structures um insulated they've got heat they've got electricity um and it's somewhere where people simply just won't freeze um so it makes sense to me but here's my concern. Where where is government on this? Where is the city on this? How how could we how could it not be public that there was a committee meeting about encampments 
and we simply never, no one ever heard about this. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to strike a committee, uh, quite another for there to be action. You know, when I think about how this hyper-focus began some weeks back, homelessness is not new. We've been talking about this issue as long as I've been in this chair, but just the thought and the sight of it being across the street from the Confederation Building brought an entirely different tone to the conversation regarding homelessness and emergency shelters uh, and otherwise. You know, I've tried to look at how they do it better and best practices elsewhere, and you know, we talked about Helsinki the other day. There's a transformational change in the way we think about housing required in this country. There just is. I mean, we have what they call the staircase method. You are homeless, then you're in a mercy shelter, then you're in a temporary accommodation, and then you're in a permanent housing solution, as opposed to what they do in places that are getting a far better uh, handle on it than we are, including Helsinki. You know, it was uh, 10 years ago, 20,000 people homeless in that city. Now it's down under 4,000 people. They put you immediately into permanent solutions right away when you find yourself homeless. At that time, they were talking about, well, that's just socialism, run amok. You'll eventually run out of other people's money. They say that based on their strategy regarding housing, they save 15,000 euro per year per person with that potential uh, to get into a permanent solution. They talk about social services, emergency health care, and interaction with the criminal justice system as to how they say their plan works. We've got to figure it out because people are just going to continue to send me emails regarding, oh, it's socialism, socialism, socialism. If, if there's a cost-benefit analysis and dealing with poverty and homelessness is a real key to getting things right on a variety of fronts. So the way we currently do it obviously doesn't work. I don't know why anybody would want to stick the status quo on housing. Absolutely. There is an economic argument, and this is where we want to – we really, really need to hear from one of the organizations that's involved in this committee, which is End Homelessness. They've got all the data. They've got all the information. Um, they they need to be speaking out publicly on this, in, in my opinion, and I'm incredibly disappointed that – that they and the gathering place uh, have not stepped up to talk about these things. Um, there's, I mean, John Abbott, geez, he's the MHA for, for the, for the area where the colonial uh, tent city is. He's done nothing. He couldn't even get us a, a porta potty. Um, so we need to have these conversations. We need to talk about the economics of it, but we also need to have, like you said, the staircase method, for getting people into housing requires case management, and we just simply don't have that. We have a number of volunteers who are really just shell-shocked almost now because of what has happened at Confederation Building and what, what has and, and, and what's followed at the Colonial site. Um, these folks are just trying their best to get people into the system where, where applicable. We've picked out a few folks who are... Uh, you know, a little bit more suitable. Um, we've got one guy who is a senior um, who's been eight years homeless, living on the street. I think probably, you know, being picked up by the RNC and spending a night in in the uh, in in you know being held by the RNC probably has has kept him alive. But now he's ready. He's ready to get into the system and into a you know what like a, a suitable shelter, not one with rats living in dead rats in the walls. Um, so, you know, what we need is case management to be down there. We've got organizations like Thrive and, and Homelessness has some outreach officers that are, that are down there. We need the harm reduction van or harm reduction team to be there, which I believe that they are now attending 
but the case management patty is really lacking and there's been no like this committee could could have could have had a meeting with volunteers to say here's the type of information we need here's the here's what you need to find out uh from folks um we need to know if there's complicating factors there's several people down there that um have been uh, abused um i would say 100% of the people have incredibly complex uh, situations going on. And that's, that's me saying that from a background of working for the House of Commons and dealing with this kind of thing, just, you know, practical solutions for people. These are incredibly complex solutions. These are the people that have not been able to fit into the, the existing system and remain outside of it. So knowing that this committee is there, knowing that Paul Pike has not engaged anyone at Colonial Building, knowing that the Premier is unwilling to meet with Jude, who is organizing uh, the Colonial Building protest or an aspect of it, uh, knowing that John Abbott is doing nothing with, you know, when I know that families are calling him saying, hey, listen, is Bannerman Park safe? We need to ensure that our children are, are you know, are able to go there and play. Uh, you know, the just harken back to the economics of it, the economics uh, of being able to play in a park or the ability to be able to play in a park could be drastically changed by whether there are shelters, safe places, uh, homeless, uh, tiny homes that people can go to and not freeze. The urgency and the immediacy of uh, some type of solutions, even in the short term, people have been talking about it, but I haven't seen a whole lot of action. It's been, you know, the silence is deafening on this front. Uh, final thoughts to you, Mark, before I take another call. Well, I'm, I'm angry with the province, and I'm angry with the city, and I'm incredibly disappointed at these organizations who have not who, who their man, you know, and their, their mandate is to deal with this kind of stuff. And they've not stepped up and they've not called out the city and they've not called out the province. Um, and, and I think that they need to do that. I, I'm disappointed, Patty. I understand your frustration, Mark, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the call. Stay in touch. Thanks a lot, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, I don't want to get tangled up with the blowing right through the 9.30 break like I do far too often here on the show. But anyway, there's, you know, there's going to have to be something that comes to pass before the winter really kicks in. I mean, we've already had frosty conditions. We woke up to snow on the ground yesterday, and I don't know what the solution looks like. If you think that it's... Some people have told me it's really quite silly to think that we can use things like trappers' tents or uh, the type of tents that would be set up in work camp situations or some of the infrastructure belonging to the uh, Royal, uh, pardon me, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment or what have you. But certainly anything is better than what we currently see. And the population of that tent encampment is growing day in, day out. Uh, let's try to get to the break on time. When we come back, oh, there we go. Founding president of the Canadian Sealers Association is Jim Winters. He's in the queue to talk about that issue and regarding the CETA and the agreement that we entered into back, I think, about 2014. Don't go away. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. So good morning to one of the founders, uh, the founding president of the Canadian Sealing Association. That's Jim Winters. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Jim. How about yourself? Uh, not too bad. So we're going to talk about seals, yeah? Sure. Something that they're not going to talk about at CEDA, yet uh, CEDA agreement uh, is uh, right for... Um, 
using to uh, change the laws in the EU. As you know, the, we have a ban against our steel products in the EU. It's based on propaganda that's been uh, fed into the European politicians for decades and decades and decades, not based on any science whatsoever. And yet uh, it appears the government of Canada is not going to take this opportunity to uh, attack that law. Basically, right now, we're dealing with a Europe that is in a dire straits when it comes to trying to have enough power to survive the winter. They uh, foolishly got involved with the Russians, and that didn't work out too well. And now they need to find other places. And we have the potential here in Newfoundland to develop a lot of what is called green hydrogen and ammonia. And that would be ideal to solve their problems. So is the government of Canada going to sit down and say to them, OK, guys, you want access to our resources? Let us talk about having laws based on science and not propaganda. Uh, no, they're not doing that. They're going to push it under the carpet. That's been the standard Canadian government approach for the last, well, I've been at this for 30 or 40 years, and that is basically what Canada always does. It just gives you a little bit of smoke and mirrors to make us think that things are going well, when in fact they're not. Now, you could argue that there is no market in Europe, because I've heard that from a number of people. No, what there is is no access to the market. The market didn't just poof, dry up and go away. What happened was the EU politicians bought in to the propaganda, passed a law that said, you, the citizen, will not use this product. We, the politicians, are going to tell you, you cannot use this product. And that is exactly what happened. So lift the law and then see if the citizens want to buy the products. And incidentally, the same thing happened in the United States with the Marine Mammal Protection Act. American citizens didn't all of a sudden have an uprising and say, oh, gosh, no, we're not going to use SEALs. They were told by their politicians who bought into the same propaganda, no, 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 you can't can't use that product. And if you think that this is not really an issue, ask any of the people on Water Street, like Natural Boutique or Vogue, always in Vogue, they turn away hundreds of American tourists every year, European tourists too, for that matter, because we can't get access to the market. It's not a question of there is no market. The other thing that is really galling in the European situation is that within the EU, there is debate going on as to the legitimacy of that law. So the law was looked at by the WTO because Canada very nicely said, would you please take a look at this and maybe we can get it changed. And the WTO, which is a world trade organization, it, it deals with trade, Patty. Mm-hmm. But they made this decision based on morality. Morality. They're basically saying, oh, you dastardly Canadians, because you're killing seals, we can't let you have the seals in our society because that would impact on the morals of Canadian citizens. Well, now you think about it and think what other laws are passed in any society to protect society, the society from the moral issues brought on by people who behave in an immoral manner. Yeah. I'm sure you can come up with a few. Well, I mean, so, the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the United States, all the while they will call the sea lion population for obvious uh, reasons in, say, off the coast of California. The WTO absolutely. will make these uh, types of rulings based on morality while they dine on a foie gras getting ready to go to the bullfight. So, exactly, exactly. And with, uh, I'll tell you how ridiculous it, it gets. 
in uh, the Magdalen Islands, uh, DFO cut down the uh, mackerel fishery. So the boys were looking for a way for bait for crab and lobster. Right? They came up with the idea of uh, making a bait, uh, bait bomb, you might call it, uh, using seal meat. And a company in PEI said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's see what we can develop a recipe for this. And they did. And then they said, oh, maybe we better check on this. So some, they asked DFO, and some mid-level bureaucrat wrote a letter to the MP, MMPA, and the MMPA came back and said, oh, no, you catch any fish using seals in your bait, and we will ban it from the United States of America. It doesn't matter what it is. Did the government of Canada do anything? No. A mid-level bureaucrat, buddy. They didn't say the ambassador in Washington, hey, let's go and deal with this. This is ridiculous. And as you quite rightly point out, the MMPA does have exceptions. And therefore, sea lions mostly, pinnipeds, seals and sea lions are both pinnipeds. And the MMPA is, is all about pinnipeds. Seals and, and the sea lions fit into that. But why do they do it over, over there? Oh, well, some of the farmers, the uh, salmon farmers were complaining about the sea lions. Mary and Tommy didn't, couldn't take their little kids to the beach because the sea lions were defecating all over the beaches and were a nuisance. And they're big and they're black and they're ugly. So we'll make an exemption for them. Oh, but the cute little seals, we can't make an exemption for them because they've bought into the propaganda. It's ridiculous. And we don't and even India- take the little cute white coat. I mean, it's not even part yeah. of the seal harvest. So. Oh, it hasn't been, for, hasn't been since 1983. And this brings up the whole issue of Ottawa. Maloof did his thing, which was a wonderful idea. He studied it all, and what did he do? Ottawa, I think, basically wanted them to come back and say, oh, well, let's stop sealing. But he didn't do that. What he did is he said, there is absolutely nothing wrong. All my studies indicate there is nothing wrong with killing seals. No problem with humane killing, no problem with population, no problem, period. But in the order to try and offset the negative images that the white coat hunt brings to the Canadian people, let's stop killing with white coats. And they said, oh, good idea. Now, what people don't know is that that was a good thing, not only for Canada in the broader sense, or at least they thought it was, but for Newfoundland, it was a good thing. Because with the big boat hunt and the white coat kill, very few people, these boats used to carry 25, 30 guys each. There was only five or six of them. Well, the minute they were out of the scene and we were killing older seals, all of a sudden you've got longliners up and down both coasts, northern peninsula, both sides, the whole northeast coast of Canada, each one carrying five or six crew, and they were killing 30, 40, 50, 60 thousand seals. That money was going all through the communities in Newfoundland. So Maloof did us a favor. He did us a big favor, but that wasn't the objective. The objective was to get rid of sealing, and that still hasn't gone away. And we still have people who say, oh my, we're cleaning it up. It looks a lot nicer. It's a lot better. They don't get the point. This is not about ending sealing per se. Sealing is merely a tactic of the animal rights movement to get rid of man using animals for any purpose. We're the tactic. We're the victims of all that. And the Europeans are beginning to find out they're victimizing themselves. If you go over now and talk to fishermen in Sweden, Baltic coast of Germany, Denmark, Estonia, Latvia, Finland, they got a problem. You know what the problem is? Too many seals. What are we going to do? Oh, our own laws are coming back to bite us in the arse. But is the government of Canada taking a strong point? No. 
You know, somebody will show up here in Newfoundland, a politician from up along somewhere and wear a seal's coat and say, I'm solving the problem. That doesn't solve the problem. The problem can be only solved if the government of Canada gets some backbone and says, listen, Europe, if you want to ban our seals, we are going to retaliate. We are going to stand up for the people of Nunavut. We're going to stand up for the people of Quebec. We're going to stand up for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. You want access to our resources? You want access to our trade? Stop putting in place immoral laws, laws that are not based in anything at all other than propaganda. And for Europeans to fall for propaganda, don't they know their own history? Propaganda has never done Europeans any favors. And yet we're stuck with the results. Yeah, I mean, there's formal opportunities to discuss trade. I mean, CETA would have been a, a likely place to start if there was any, you know, thought that it was important enough to include because fisheries were directly involved in CETA negotiations. People know the story here. In an effort to see the reduction of the tariffs for the export of our seafood, of course, we gave away our minimum processing requirements, the NPRs. So, and that kind of fell apart when we talk about the fisheries fund and whatnot. But, I mean, if we were talking the fishery with that trade agreement, then how come that wasn't included at that point. Very quickly before I let you go, and this question is more optics versus the actions as you described that are woefully lacking in this conversation. Does it give you any hope that it will find a place on the agenda? You know, because it's not by coincidence or fluke that the Premier wore his sealskin last night, and maybe that's just the optics of it to say, you know, I'm in your corner, but do you take any solace that maybe he will be trying to drive this uh, as an agenda item? Well, I don't know Premier Fury, and I don't know what kind of a man he is, but I do know in the history of the times I've been involved in this, there has been never a Canadian politician who did much more than stand up and wear the sealskin jacket and make token announcements in the Vither and Yon. Uh, you know, seal days on the hill and all that foolishness. What we need is a tough politicians that are, and I don't care about the party. I'm not talking about liberal or conservative or NDP or anything. We need politicians that say it is necessary to defend the rights of our citizens. Granted, we're only a small group. We've got seven seats. You know, that's it. Well, Quebec got 96, but the Magdalen Islanders and the Quebec North Shore people will tell you their government in Quebec City is about as helpful as the government of Ottawa. And no offense to anybody in Newfoundland, but our government in Newfoundland has done a lot of smoke and mirrors and not a heck of a lot of stand-up backbone saying to Ottawa, first of all, we're going to fight you guys if you won't fight for us. We have a right in this country to pursue things that are legal and approved by every aspect of our society. We should not be thrown under the bus to satisfy trade needs. And that's what's happened over the years, to satisfy trade needs. And you could say the same thing of the fisheries. A lot of the fisheries policies that have been uh, put in place or policies that have been put in place by foreigners and accepted by the government of Canada have a lot to do with where do we rank in the export market in Canada. Are we up there with Ontario and manufacturing machinery and so on and so on that goes into wherever? Quebec, manufacturing company, the province that sends stuff all over the place. The wheat and the canola and the whatnot of the prairies. Uh, the oil of Alberta? No, we're not up there. We're not there in that size. We're not in that league. We're too small. So because we're small, we're expendable. That's been the policy of Ottawa, not the, this government or the past government, but all the governments for ever since the seal issue came to the surface. We've been a sacrificial lamb to make people in Ottawa feel good about themselves. 
It, it's just pretty ridiculous. And am I optimistic? I don't know. I have to be. Why would I keep doing this? And people like me. I'm not alone. There's all kinds of people that feel the way I do. But we don't always get a chance to articulate our views. We never get invited to stuff. And when you do go to Senate committees or Commons committees, the Standing Fisheries Committees, which I've done, it's wonderful. They all listen to you. Then you see a report come out six months later or a year later. And then you go to look for it five years later and it's catching dust on the shelf somewhere. And I can give, tell you the names of loads of Newfoundlanders and Quebecers and the people from Nunavut who have done that. They have made those presentations. And they know. Oh, yeah. smoke and mirrors, man. Isn't it nice? We're all here in the room. Let's have a coffee. And then it all goes away. And that's been the history of the whole sealing industry, not just for Newfoundland and Labrador, but for the people of Quebec and the Inuit in the Kaluit. And probably there are people in Northwest Territories who are suffering too. And ironically, ironically, the pretense by all the animal rights groups and all the governments involved in the United States and in the EU of saying, oh, my dear, we are politically correct. We wouldn't dream of impacting anything to do with the indigenous population. Well, you go ask the people in the indigenous communities of Canada what's happened because of those things. Right. Just smoke and mirrors, man. Smoke and mirrors. And not trying to be ignorant, but the SEAL doesn't know if it was taken by an indigenous person <laughs> and or, you know, a swiler from exactly. uh, Bergio. Uh, I exactly. would also suggest, Jim, that people search out your award-winning doc- documentary, Birth Swiler, and I appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure, Patty. Anytime, man. Thanks, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. It was 45 years ago, maybe this week, that something strange happened in Black Tickle. A UFO? Don't know. Something fell from the sky and set the place on fire. So we're going to talk about that particular event 45 years ago, and then lots of time for you to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, you mentioned a couple of days ago about food waste, and uh, poverty has been on for quite some time. I'm reading a book now uh, called Poverty in America. It's got to do with the States, but I'm, I'm wondering how much of it applies to here. The guy makes the case that uh, poverty persists, and there's a lot of reasons given for it, but he said the main reason completely is that uh, poverty benefits other people, therefore it won't be done away with. He argues that the same as slavery benefited others economically, child labor did, so does poverty. And I haven't gotten into his main argument yet, but I can see that looking around at, at, at the Walmarts of the world and so on, what they they uh, pay each of their workers, it's certainly not a living wage. Most of these people are retired or they have to have another job. And I think he's right. There's people who need poverty, therefore, when governments make decisions about basic annual income and so on, they're influenced by uh, a lot of other people and groups, and that's one of the reasons I believe that they won't go there, because that would go a long way to eliminating poverty. And as far as food waste... uh, If you look at who's responsible mostly, and this is speaking generally, it's well-to-do people. Uh, we, 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 we waste more food, we throw out more food, we throw out more things, we buy more things. And the problem of affluenza in a, in a, on a planet that's uh, stretched to, to the limit for resources, it's the well-to-do uh, 
that, that, that are mainly responsible, I believe, for both these things. Anyway, well, poverty is different in the United States than many other countries, just given how their system is currently set up. You know, the whole concept of feudalism, I don't know where that book is going that you're talking about. But if we're talking about the war on poverty, the rich have won, you know, whether it be benefiting from the labor of the poor. But then I guess the counter argument to that is the rich people and the stuff they make and sell can't be bought by the poor. So it's counterintuitive for them to even be benefiting from uh, poor people and poverty in general, as they currently do. Certainly when we talk about what happens in the United States, little different set of circumstances here. But uh, I understand your point, I think. And in the world of food waste, I don't know who's wasting it. Certainly people who are scrimping along are scraping along. They're probably not wasting it to the tune where other who have not facing the same affordability issues. 58% of all the food in Canada, Canada annually is lost or wasted. 32% of the food in this country could be directed or to support other Canadians. We've got millions of people going to food banks, and yet we're throwing food in the garbage every single day in most every household in the country. It's kind of hard to understand. I'm the leftover king. I try to make sure that everything yeah. I cook eventually gets eaten. I'll eat the same dish. Like I made shepherd's pie the other day. I've had it three lunches in a row. <laughs> I'm not throwing it away. <laughs> it's just not happening. Anyway, Charlie, let's talk about black tickle. Good for you. Uh, 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 just before I leave, that luxury homes, I noticed in some parts of the states, are being uh, taxed, uh, a luxury tax, to spend on affordable housing. I think that should be a policy everywhere. It might help to cut down all these humongous homes that are being built by people who can afford to pay a luxury tax and who should be discouraged from uh, 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 using resources in that way for homes that they they don't need to square footage except for ego or whatever. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. How f- I'm not so sure how I feel about being people being told how they can spend their own money, you know, and people who can afford to build and live in those types of homes that you describe, they're also able to uh, pay the additional tax. And of course, are politicians going to be quick to try to do things like windfall taxes when some of the big support they come get come campaign time comes from those exact people, corporations and the wealthy, because the poor aren't making campaign donations. Don't forget luxury homes and, and, and luxury cars and all this stuff, this affluenza, as one guy called it. This is, this, this, this is a problem worldwide. And uh, having the right to uh, uh, take what you want from this earth, I disagree with you entirely, but I, I don't want to get into an argument on that one now. Uh, the black tickle thing, I, I heard the, uh, the all right. Tuned into the interview this morning on the, the internet there. In 1978, a well-spoken nurse, I heard her talking, and uh, I think she had another woman there with her, uh, described this thing. They thought first it was a star, but it was strange because it was the middle of the day or something. Anyway, uh, they were watching it. They realized, of course, that, that very soon that it wasn't. And later, this was joined by another uh, craft, and uh, they they watched it. I thought they said for about forty minutes. So when somebody says that uh, maybe they saw something, or you know, people who have seen it, that drives them crazy because they know what they saw, and they know what they saw is not man-made. They know it's out of this world, whatever. And uh, I thought it was quite the story. Anyway, at first time I, I had heard about it. Uh, do you want to comment? Well, I've heard some interviews about it, and certainly in the last couple of days I've heard a few. Look, whatever they saw, I don't know, I wasn't there, but something fell out of the sky. 
right? I mean, so that much is indisputable. Whether it was a UAP or a UFO or however people like to use those acronyms, there was a fire as a result of something falling out of the air. I mean, even the next day, uh, and it's not just, you know, a, a few people saw it. The vast majority of the community saw it. One of the yeah. uh, projects they took on in the schools the very next day was the children were asked to draw what they saw in the sky the day before. So it wasn't just one person, you know, tripping out in a field by his lonesome and thought he saw a UFO. It was the whole community saw it. And so it's kind of hard to push back and say, oh, no, come on, now, what are you talking about? People saw it, a lot of people, and there was a fire. So something happened, something fell out of the sky. I wasn't there, so I have no earthly idea what it was, but they describe it, and very similar stories being told by everyone who saw what they saw. You know, some children at the time, of course, their memories might be a little bit muddy 45 years down the road, but when it happened, people were telling the same story. Here's what I saw. This is the next person. I saw the exact same thing. So there was something in the sky. Patty, millions of people have seen similar and are seeing similar objects as we speak. And for science, scientists like Carl Sagan and, and, and others to scoff at it, they don't want to tackle it because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to explain it. So they try to uh, laugh it away. And that, that drives people crazy. It's, it's showing scientists for... Uh, I mean, they, they, they should be looking into this. It should be, it should be a serious thing. If, anyway, I guess I'll leave it at that. Oh, yeah. Uh, sometime I'll tell you about, about a story that happened uh, close to where I live uh, back in the early 80s was even more spectacular than what we're talking about, saw by, by three fishermen. The thing literally came out of the water uh, uh, by them, and uh, I'll leave it at that. But anyway... Um, We've only got a minute, so if you want to take something else on, quick. The, the, the wind farms, I don't know if you've seen this lately, the expense on building these things has gone through the roof worldwide because of supply problems and lack of materials and so on. And I'm wondering, these people, when you, when you get these major projects, you can be sure that whatever price they're talking about to make a profit uh, uh, doesn't stay there. It goes through the roof. And, and already we're seeing signs of, of that all over the world re- re- regarding this form of energy, even though I'm, I'm for it. So uh, whatever they come up with, I'll say again, this cannot make money. Uh, uh, green hydrogen shipped over there cannot make money, and I'll stand by that. You know, it's the want for certain countries or jurisdictions to move away from hydrogen that they currently use, which is gray, you know, driven by fossil fuel generation, versus green, which comes whether it be wind or solar. So the price point is real. I mean, I've looked around to try to get as much information in my poor little head as I can, and the price point on green hydrogen is absolutely at the very top of the scale. Add in the power loss through transportation, and there's a debate as to whether or not this is as profitable as currently as is, is described. Now, when we talk about wind power to use simply by the power generated by the wind versus the conversion through uh, electrolysis and ammonia and then transported, I think it's a different kettle of fish, but that might bring a little bit more revenue side to it. But whether or not it's profitable, I think it's a fair debate. Now, I've said in the past, and you've taken me to task for it, it's not necessarily my concern. And what I've always meant by that is I know my federal tax dollars are going to be seriously supporting these projects. 
if there's ever an opportunity down the road for these pro uh, projects and proposals to not be profitable, we've got to enshrine in the uh, current contracts that are going to be struck that there will never be any provincial money to prop them back up because we just talked about the Kruger outstanding balance of $117 million and all the other monies that's gone into that operation. We've got to be extremely careful with hard-to-come-by money because every dollar that goes out on that form is, in essence, borrowed money. Right? We're borrowing it to prop up other businesses and business models. So uh, point taken, Charlie. I'm off to the break, but I appreciate your time. Okay. Everwind every uh, is already in Nova Scotia getting 120-something uh, million from the government. These, these companies wouldn't be looking at this at all. They know the, the, the federal government has a real hard-on for, for these projects, and uh, that's, that's one of the main reasons that they're, they're being proffered. But anyway. Yeah, I, I mean... The federal government, not to defend or support or promote a policy, but when the Americans, with the monies that they put forward in the Inflation Reduction Act, if we didn't do act somehow, whether that be liberals or NDP or the conservatives, someone was going to do something because the outflow of capital investment in this country would have been immediate. So something had to give. Whether or not we're on the right track or not, I don't know. But the Americans pretty much forced our hand. Yes. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Charlie. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, more conversation about wind energy, then uh, addiction, and what else is on the go here. Uh, Sam wants to talk about wind as well. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Let's take a moment to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Mr. Patty Daly. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? Good. Happy Friday. Yes, no, not a day too soon. <laughs> anyway, first of all, thanks for having me on. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, a very significant pro uh, rally that's taking place here in Stephenville tomorrow at 2 p.m. It's going to be on the Industrial Ram Carolina Avenue, and uh, we've known that there's been a you know a great uh, silent majority out there, but. There's been a grassroots movement, I guess, just recently to let's let's show, you know, world energy, let's show all levels of government that the community, uh, they don't just uh, want this, they need this, you know, they need this for prosperity, for their families to look at coming home from different parts of the world that they're working, uh, and just, just to generate some hope and some growth for Stephenville, Western Newfoundland, and Newfoundland in general. It's a, it's a big, big... Uh, file with a big budget that's going to create a lot of economic and social growth for us and uh but also the really good news about this is we're turning it into a food drive for our food bank and as you well know i've been listening to your uh, your newscast here about the issues of food banks across this province and this country but uh we get a chance that we may get you know thousands of people coming out uh tomorrow for this rally it's regional uh business community children um everybody's behind this and uh but i think it's going to be critical also for our food bank because uh, one of the companies on the ramp have donated their industrial space uh for the collection of goods that's uh, salt life marine on the ramp and uh, we're looking forward to it and i think the weather's going to be good and we're looking for a great turnout 
I, you know, I haven't been in the room with John Risley or anybody else talking about how they're crafting their message and application for capital investment. Of course, if the business model doesn't work, they're not getting the money. It's as simple as that. I just wonder what that business model really does look like in the long term. Because if it is such, like, for instance, the MOU with Germany. Germany now, as a country, says they have a stockpile of natural gas to get them through the winter. So they're not hurting today for any additional energy source because they got the gas, apparently. So says Bloomberg. In the long term, if green hydrogen is what people say it is, then what's the likelihood of uh, wind farms and ammonia plants being much closer proximity to Germany, which will come with less power loss, a different price point given transportation issues and what have you? I just wonder what that looks like in the long term. Now, if there seems to be expanding markets for the product you know, el- elsewhere in the world, including on the northeastern United States or what have you, then that's one thing. But I think there's real concerns that somewhere down the road, very much like a lot of different industries, they come with hat in hand, looking for additional government monies to keep them viable and profitable. So I just wonder in the long term if this product is what people are telling us it is. Yeah, and, I, and you know, great point, Patty, and there's no doubt on the economic and the financial perspective on a, a new emerging product. Uh, this green hydrogen now is a very a palatable uh, product that the world needs, and it's for decarbonization. And as it stands now, offtake agreements will happen. Will they exist 20 years from now? We're not sure. But and uh, how long will it take to return on the investment for the capital expenditure on this project? So maybe it's only going to take 20 years. I'm not into the financial projections on that. It's not at my pay grade. But I will say this, that our location is also critical for the future because if you look at our location, we have a deep seaport that's the closest ice-free port to the Northwest Passage. Then we have an ICAO International Cargo Potential Airport. As the aviation sector and the marine sector transitions from uh, diesel, uh, clean-burning diesel, uh, to go to maybe hydrogen with zero emissions, there may be federal policy coming down through the feds that, you know, within the next 10 years, there's nobody going through the Northwest Passage unless you're burning clean, green uh, hydrogen, for example. So I think there's other applications maybe within the North American industry sector and uh, market demand that we might be supplying Europe now, but 20 years from now, it might be more that we're supplying North America and South America. Even when we talk about geographical footprint, I mean, when we talk about wind turbines, anyone who's been up the southern shore, down in Ramy, the wind turbines you see there are not the wind turbines we're talking about. So when two phases are complete, if that happens, we're talking about 40% of the Port of Port Peninsula being peppered with wind turbines. Is there not a concern there for what that means for the viability of community and whether it be other sectors of the economy, like tourism and otherwise? Because that's a pretty significant footprint. Yeah, and you know what? That, that's a good point. It is a big project and a big footprint. And, you know, it's it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I look at a wind turbine, I think it looks beautiful because it's innovative, it's green, it's helping advance our planet and the citizens that live here. But when we look at the Port of Port Peninsula, 124 turbines, actually the concrete pad would be the same size as a house. So you're only looking at 124 homes for the footprint. And back in the 40s and 50s, we had towers in West Bay and uh, Jerry's Nose, part of the uh, Pine Tree Line. We had towers that were 800 feet in the air with lights on them. So, you know, we've had things like that there. Uh, but the footprint, I think, is very minimal compared to, say, 
we have a big uh, mining operation, uh, CMAX, on the Port of Port Peninsula. That escarpment of, uh, has been important to the economics of the Port of Port Peninsula, but it has taken up a lot of uh, uh, acreage and hectares for that development. But at the end of the day, 124 turbines, the footprint of the concrete pad is 124 homes. Yeah, but we're not talking of 124, though, either. We're talking in two phases, 328. So that's yeah. a bigger number than what you're using right there. Uh, okay, so we'll see where this all goes. I am curious to, you know, last one on that before we get to the airport. So even the information that has flowed, I had, I gave it my best shot to try to sift through the 4,000-page document, and we know government went back asking more questions on a variety of different fronts, water use and monitoring and the accumulative effect and all the rest of it. The information's hard to digest. It just is. It's over my head. And if it's over my head, it's probably over a lot of heads. So I'm not even sure people really firmly understand exactly what we're getting ourselves in here, into here. So, you know, I know government is low. Then even the federal government said there's no need to trigger the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, intervener status, funding for experts, and, you know, a longer uh, time frame between, you know, proposal and approval. I'm not really sure we know exactly what we're getting ourselves into, to be honest. You know, and that's a good point. A lot of this is over my head. I'm not a, you know, a technical uh, science background when it comes to riparian zones and uh, hydrology of water and stuff like that. But we do have a really good department, our water resources department. We have great legislation in this province. Uh, we have actually more pieces of legislation than any province in Canada. Maybe we sometimes you talk to, to the business community and say we're, we're uh, you know, too steep in the legislation and too many uh, regulations and so forth. But at the end of the day, you got to remember, just 100, 100, 100 miles from Stephenville, there are wind turbines, major wind turbines in Cape Breton. And there's baseline studies right across the country from Cape Breton right to British Columbia. Uh, I was in Pincher Creek visiting my da- uh, sister. And uh, there's turbines right across this country. So there are baseline studies about protections of riparian zones and so forth. Uh, safe distances from homes and you got to remember across this great country we got wind farms where it's in farmers fields and the cows are around the wind farms and the uh, crops are around the wind farms this has has coexisted in canada but it has coexisted in some of the best cleanest greenest economies in europe like the netherlands and the scandinavian countries uh they're in the water and they coexist with the fishery so i think there's good baseline studies but patty you're so right new to us and I think that's why government has just slowed it just a touch. And that's the key. It, it's in its infancy. It's unknown to us exactly what it means. We understand oil and mining and forestry. But yeah. We get that because it's been here. And I'm not talking about additional legislation or regulatory hurdles because they're two different conversations. We're talking about information, sharing, dissemination, uh, people opposing it with uh, academic research or whatever the case may be versus, you know, putting more regulations in play. It doesn't mean you're going to overburden an industry with regulations if we simply understand exactly what we're doing before we do it. That's all I'm saying. I'm, and I'm not saying it's bad, good, bad, or indifferent. Is uh, yeah. I'm still struggling to understand in full what we're actually doing here. L- let's get into the airport for a second. Okay. I'm sure you know, based on access to information, people are getting all sorts of email communication between yourself and Carl Diamond, a lot of which is really Mr. Diamond asking you, as the mayor of Stephenville and as a former member of the Stephenville Airport Corporation, to be the driver, the champion, the advocate. 
advocate, the cheerleader for this, even before the airport was sold. So people think that it, the, uh, the airport corporation and you as the mayor were driving this exercise before it was actually even officially sold, and the emails are clear. I'm sure you've probably seen them. Mr. Diamond yeah. is basically leaning on you. And then there's issues like, for instance, at one point on October the 12th, you told one of the members of the airport corporation, Chester Coffin, he's no longer part of the SAC. He's going to be replaced by a representative of Port of Basque. People are insinuating that you were too intimately involved in a project where you should have been standing back to ensure it was done in the best interest of the corporation and the community. Yeah, you know, we have people that are doing countermeasures against us. But, you know, Patty, at the end of the day, I'm the mayor of the town of Steamboat. And the airport, the town don't exist, or the airport didn't exist because of the town. The town exists because of the airport. Like, we went from 500 people to 12,000 people because a big airport in the U.S. Air Force Base happened there. The airport is critically important. Remember, Carl Diamond now has taken over that airport. He took them out of bankruptcy protection. He paid off a million-dollar debt that was carried by the provincial government. He's given everybody a raise. They've just started the $1.3 million additional upgrade to complete a $3 million uh, advanced LED lighting system. Uh, Things are starting to happen. And my role was ex officio. I'm I'm a former air traffic controller, Canadian Air Force. I'm the mayor of the town. And taking uh, that airport off of the books of the Steedmill Town Council, you know, we were putting, you know, sometimes $400,000 a year to keep the payroll going and lights on. And uh, we could have been putting that into food bank or uh, recreation or paving more streets. And people are really happy. There's not everybody's going to be 100% with it and my role and what I played. But everything that I did was sanctioned and approved by my council. I said it's an ex officio on the board. And it's all good. And I'm very confident, Patty, that our airport and our port are going to be very busy in the near future. I wish we had more time this morning, Mayor Rose. Thanks for this. Thank you very much, and happy Friday. Enjoy your weekend, sir. You, sir, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, I mentioned off the top that yesterday there was indeed the opening of the Lionel Kellen Hospice in Grand Falls, Windsor, the first of its uh, kind here in the province. I did mention pharmacist Ken Dix, Dr. John Campbell, and Dr. Jeff Cole. But, of course, we also have to include the chair of the hospice's board of directors, Mark Griffin. He's in the queue right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Dave, where would you like me to go? Let's see here. We'll get some direction from David. Okay, line number two, Dave. Is that what you said? Or line number one? Okay, can hardly see through that glass. Let's go to line one. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Yes, sir. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, sir. How about you? Uh, Patty, I'm calling about addictions. I'm, uh, I've worked now four months, right? Waiting to do a program and have a grace. So I goes out to a Monday. I thought uh, the company would pay for transportation. Oh, apparently they don't, and the government don't. I was wondering, uh, I don't know, I figured one of them would pay, pay for uh, transportation. I mean, you're a drug addict. How far uh, do you have to go? Got to go to Harold Grace. Oh, you're Grace out at uh, U-Turn. Yeah, Grace Center, got to go. I always tell the company to pay for it, the government to pay for it. No, I, I mean, don't. You're a, you're a drug addict looking for help. Every nickel I was getting was sniffing up the nose, right? Yeah, I'm not sure where there's a pot of money for it. I don't know if it falls in under medical transportation because addiction services, I think, are in the envelope of health care. Have you tried to go through that process? Yeah, I got the president of me on my phone. He said, apparently, they don't cover nothing. I thought the company didn't cover the way. Big billion-dollar company. You're asking them for help, and you apparently got to supply all the transportation itself. 
Yeah, I don't know how that gets covered, uh, to be honest with you. I suppose I can do a little dig and see if I can find a pot of money that is available for this type of transportation cost cover. Uh, I don't have it at the tip of my fingers, but I'll have a look. Is the number that I have on my screen a number where we can reach you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I mean, you got, you got money for all these politicians from Northfield coming over to big fancy $300 dinners and everything. You think they start helping their own people in Oakland? Yeah, let me have a look around for you, Paul. Yeah, i got another couple of questions on that, Paddy. Uh, EI, I think that's only go for 16 or 26 weeks or something. I found that in this morning, not a time of that's running out, just before Christmas. So when I get out to have a race, I'll be finished uh, December 22nd. I'll have to hitchhike back in out of there, I suppose. I'll freeze to that on the highway. You know what I'm saying? I do. Uh, I got no transportation. I'm crying out for help. I'm looking for the help. And when the program is done, I got no transportation to get back in out of Harbour Race. So I'm going to have to hitchhike in out of Harbour. It could be freezing cold, snow, storm, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Like I said, I I will have a look around and see if there's any support that I can find for you. And if I do find it, I will personally get back to you. How's that? Okay, that sounds cool, yeah. And uh, I got another couple of questions. Uh, Very quick. About this uh, building and that, right? This fellow Darren King, he got a trade ticket and anything? Building trade? Got the province bankrupt, I think. There's lots of money for the boondoggle. But what about Darren King, sorry? I said, uh, did he have a trade ticket and anything? Do we have a trade ticket and anything for all these buildings? Only? No, I don't think so. Uh-huh. But he, he's, then, of course, he's a leader of a group. Not yeah. of a, you know, he's not a tradesperson. I don't think he ever claimed to be. Oh, okay. And uh, the Republic of New to join the EU through the Canadian Mulf. Hey, <laughs> all right, Paddy, that's it. That's all I got to say. Okay, I'll see if I can find right. anything for you, Paul. All right, okay. thank you very much. You're Pat. welcome. Bye bye. Uh, okay, let's see. Let's keep rolling here. We'll go to line number six. Say good morning to the board chair, the Lionel Kelland Hospice. That's Mark Griffin. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to uh, speak to you and your listeners. Uh, listen, I'm happy to have you on the show. Uh, right off the bat, congratulations to you and your group. Thank you. Uh, it was uh, it was a wonderful day. Um, we were proud, pleased, um, and most important was uh, our supporters that are too many to mention um, have now had an opportunity and will over the coming days uh, and weeks before we actually take patients in, uh, residents in, I should say, and uh, we'll see it. And uh, we've had some tremendous uh, reaction from people who've come in, donors. There's been tears. There's been emotion um, because most people really didn't have an expectation of what it would be because this is new. Uh, you know, I, some would have had had an idea having had had some experience with hospice in other jurisdictions so it's been uh, it's been moving uh, for us it really has been uh... walk us through the process one thing that always struck me was just how successful you were in fundraising I mean an enormous sums of money coming in the door how much was raised privately uh, 2.7 million and counting um, and and Patty that uh, we had I mean, we had close to a million dollars before we even before we even started to ask for money. Uh, we probably had two to three hundred thousand dollars from uh, very small donations. 
of, and, and I touched on that when I spoke yesterday, because I, I think it's important to focus on that, because that, that speaks to uh, our outreach, it speaks to our community engagement, but the, the, the stories, like, and the one that, that struck me so, and there's been so many, but there's a story of, of, of a couple of young girls um, who really, you know, shouldn't have to be worrying about end-of-life care, but for whatever reason, they, they had a lemonade stand, and they gave us some money. And uh, it's, um, you know, I don't know what the motivation was, and, and every, you know, every one of these small donations that came in, they all would have had a story attached to it, um, uh, some motivating factor, some personal circumstance, loved one, what have you. But um, it was touching. And, and, you know, we had tough times as we went through this because it wasn't easy. And the, uh, the encouragement and the motivation and the energy that you would draw from that, and that, that started first. And then it got bigger, it got bigger, and donations got bigger. And then, of course, you know, we, we did launch a, a formal capital campaign uh, under the tremendous leadership of Shelley Wolfrey. <laughs> and, um, but it just grew and grew. Uh, and, and I couldn't be prouder of, of the work the board has done. But more importantly, I, I'm, I couldn't be prouder of, of the community at large and what their response has been and what their response continues to be. So, I mean, people will be possibly familiar with palliative care, but end of life care in a hospice setting, describe what the differences would be. It's home-like, I guess, is the, is the simplest uh, way that I can describe it. Uh, and I'm not a medical person, uh, Patty, but uh, that's the idea. It's a home-like setting. So if you, um, if you came in, if you were in, in one of the rooms, uh, and if you didn't know any better, and we showed you a room, you would think it's a suite or it's a, it's a hotel room or, or whatnot. And, and that's the idea. And it's about, and, and of course it's, we view, we view our duty, not just to the resident, but we consider as holistic care that includes the family. Like, so we have some family suites in there, because uh, as you can appreciate, there will be people here that, uh, you know, don't have family living here anymore and don't necessarily have a family home. They'll need places to stay. So we can accommodate some of that. Um, you know, we have uh, we, we have a children's little playroom in that area, which, you know, regrettably, uh, there will be children that will be there, if not as palliative patients, but rather, uh, you know, sons, daughters, children, grandchildren, and so on. Um, we, one of the things, and, and the, the building that was donated by the Presentation Sisters, and I can't say enough about them, uh, it, it, it gave us, it was a lot of space, fairly significantly sized uh, space. So that gave us some options to do things that we probably wouldn't be able to do um, had we had a, a from scratch development, like for example, uh, <clears throat> that was at one point it was a residence and a convent. So there's a significantly a fair sized chapel in there. So it was very important to us to preserve that space. And that now it's 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 not a chapel per se, and it's not meant to be an ecumenical or a, a, pardon me a denominational facility, but it's just a place of reflection and spirituality, whatever that may be for you. Um, you know, we have a little business room there because while you may be there with a loved one, you may still have to other things that you have to do where you can, you know, hook up 
and call that the connectivity corridor corner that was sponsored by uh, by the uh, Kona class of 2016 who had a series of fundraisers but it's you know it, it, it's it's just it's not it's not an institution I guess uh, if you and if you look at it from the outside and you look at it from the inside in the rooms and the furnishings uh, that are in the room it just it's not an institution and it doesn't have that look you have your own room you don't share a room with anybody um, and uh, I can't do it justice, uh, really. Uh, and I'd welcome you, Patty, if you're out this way, driving through, by all means, reach out, and I'd love to uh, give you a chance to take you through it. But, uh, you know, that that's, I, and again, I'm probably not doing it justice, but home-like is, is the thing. I'll be in Central uh, at some point in January, so I'll take you up on the invitation. Yeah, please do. What about staffing, Mark? Because, I mean, we look across the world of healthcare, and I know you're probably going to be able to hire housekeeping staff and other support staff, but in the world of the medical professionals, how does staffing look? We're we're uh, we're putting that in place now. We've had uh, we've had interest uh, and qualified applicants that we're kind of vetting through. Uh, we have some hired. Um, we're you know we're optimistic uh, that we'll be fine. And the other thing is we're not looking for you know we're not we're not a you know we're not a hundred uh, we're a ten bed hospice. We're not a uh, hundred uh, bed long term care facility. So we're not looking for fifty or sixty. So we're looking for relatively small numbers. Uh, um, you know, we've had lots of inquiries because it has generated, you know, a, a fair bit of interest and, and there is an element um, of uh, people that are very interested in the work, which which actually, it, it, I, it surprised me, but I guess it shouldn't surprise me. I mean, my sister is a nurse, for example, and I know the compassion that nurses have, but, in you know, it's it surprised me that people would have a passion for this when you consider what it is, you know, that you're... You're, you're, uh, you know, you're dealing with individuals that the outcome is certain. There is nothing else that can be done, and and our function is comfort, um, and dignity, care, and respect. And uh, but uh, there are people that are very passionate about that and look to it as a challenge. It, I mean, you know, obviously there's a novelty to it. It's something new. Uh, there'd be very few nurses and and the health professionals have had huge amounts of experience with it, lots with palliative care, but obviously none or very few with you know, residential hospice care unless they had it in some other jurisdiction. So uh, early indications are I think we'll be fine there. And uh, But, you know, it's it's not lost on us and, you know, we can't rest on our laurels and just assume that now that we're open, everything is going to fall into place because it's a great uh, project. So, uh, but, you know, we're, we're encouraged. Last one before I let you go, Mark. So it's operated outside the Provincial Health Authority. Is that on yeah. purpose or why is that important? Well, um, it, it is on purpose. Now, we'll, you know, we will be hand in glove with them in many cases. But um, it, the idea is we want to be autonomous and we do not want to... Um, uh, you know that, and, and that model is working in other jurisdictions. You know, like Patty, for example, if we have, uh, you know, if we have say ten beds, we have uh, four, um, you know, residential suites uh, and so on and so forth. 
uh, I suppose if we were if we were one entity under central zone and they need space, then you know you can envision mission creep where all of a sudden okay there's there's nobody in 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 the uh, you know in the stage head suite right now. Maybe we can use that room for something else in the short term. Um, but we think that uh, by and and you know the studies and the data would suggest that by doing it this way and it, and again this model is it's not new. Um, we think our bed costs will be half as much as they would be in the uh, in a hospital. So the person that's in a hospital that might properly be better served in a hospice that frees up a bed uh, for the uh, for someone else that should be more appropriately in there. And and that's been like we rely heavily on uh, Bobby's Hospice, which is a hospice in uh, St. John New Brunswick and Halifax Hospice, and they were wonderful and supportive whenever we had questions and whatnot. And that's the model that they operated on as well um, and you know we are not for profit and uh, so we have there's no reason to believe it wouldn't work here and and of course we're very happy to be the first one we'll be very disappointed if we're the last one um, and I don't expect that we would ever we will be and there will be more and hopefully we can provide assistance from what we know to the next hospice that opens up in the same way that uh, Bobby's hospice and Halifax Hospice and those places provided that assistance to us. So, uh, you know, it's exciting times, and uh, you know, we're 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 fatigued at times, but uh, energized by the challenge. I wish you and your fellow board of directors members and, of course, all the staff and eventually the patients and their families that will be taking advantage of the ten-bed Lionel Kellen Hospice. Uh, well done yourself. Appreciate the time this morning, Mark. Yeah, and I look forward to an opportunity to get you to come out and have a look. Take care. Anytime. Take care of yourself as well. There you go. It's Mark Griffin. He's the board chair of the Lionel Kelland Hospice. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sam's there to talk about wind energy. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Okay. How about you, Sam? Good, good. I'm from the Port of Port Peninsula. I've, uh, I've, I am a farmer, and I don't self-sustain, plus friends and family. I keep going. And I've worked abroad all across Canada all my life. I see many of my friends disappear and come back. And the ones that come back, they were hard shape, probably drug addiction problems or whatever, health problems, or retired. So they come back, and they don't stay because their families, their kids, their grandchildren is in, is in another province. And right now, this is the chance to keep the people that's here with this wind energy project for to keep them here in this project. We know we say rich get richer, yes, but it's the rich that give us the jobs. Without the rich, we wouldn't have no jobs. We need merchants to buy, merchants to buy our products for the fisheries. Without the, fish, without the merchants, who's going to buy the fisheries? The local people won't sustain be enough for to keep them going. We need this project. If not, this place is going to die. There is no population here. We have very few kids. Everything is closing down. Services is, is next to nothing. We, we, where's the money all come from? From working taxpayers. We need working taxpayers. And the retired people that do come here got nothing to come to. There's, no, there's nothing here for anybody. So with this world energy, 
they're doing, they're doing their due diligence, whatever they have to do, and the government's putting extra speculations in place, more than any province in Newfoundland or in Quebec province in Canada, and you mean, we need it. You mean, it's, 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 it'd be suicide if we don't go through with this project for economic-wise and for our area. It would kill the poor, poor peninsula. As always, for the people that's, that's on disability or, or retired or something like that, they can afford, but the working people that want to stay home, to stay home longer with their families, so they don't have to call their family, Daddy or Mommy, when are you coming home? Right? Well, i got to stay up here longer because I need to work. I need to pay bills. Right? So, you mean, it's, it's so sad. If they can stay home for two years, three years, four years, five years, without leaving their children, and hoping that some of their children that's abroad will come home to live, to work, because some of them is qualified training like engineers or, or anything to do with the, the technical industry. I mean, we, it's, it's a project that will help the area. We have water issues, and maybe World Energy might help us with our water issues. But there's four, over 4,000 people here in Bay St. or Port Port Peninsula, from Port Port East, Port Port West, and the peninsula itself. There's over 3,000 people here that supports it. There's a small number that's against it. Right? And then, well, do those people care about other people? Do they have to care about me or anybody else at the work go abroad? Or had to call home and say, Mommy and Daddy, when are you coming home to work? Come home to live? Some don't come home, they have injuries, or die traveling. It's sad. You mean, this area really needs this project. And you mean, this is an opportunity. If without any more delays, it will kill it. And it'll go, and it'll never come back. And this place will just die. We got less than 50 kids in some of the schools here. How can government keep feeding and keeping us going? How could this happen? The whole West Coast is gonna benefit. This year. The whole island's going to benefit this year. Hydrogen is going to take over electric cars. Maybe. Just a matter of time. Yeah, so what leads you to believe that any delay is going to chase the project away? John Risley himself has, has said the exact opposite. Well, there is a delay already because, I mean, they're, they're wanting a few, the government wants some speculations. They'll put up, I think it's five, I believe, speculations put in place. But, you mean, there's lots of studies put in this area. There's studies all around, all across Canada. But they're doing extra here at Newfoundland. I don't know why. And we, what's the problem? I've been right underneath the windmills in, uh, in Alberta, in Ontario. There was no problem. But I asked the farmer, I said, is there any problems with your cattle or have you seen any dead birds or anything? Both? Nothing, he said. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm getting good money for this. So I walked underneath, and all I heard was just, you could walk right directly underneath, and I just heard a little wolf right underneath. And that don't hurt none. And even if they're higher up in the sky, you won't hear zero because it's so high. And they're using uh, biodegradable hydraulic fluid, so it's plant-based. So how can this hurt this environment? We look at the electrical poles every day. There's thousands of them all over the island, and there's more of a risk of anything. Right? We got environmental issues in the Port Port Peninsula. We got tons and tons of land being shipped all over the world. We got dust in my vehicles in my house every morning from the mines. We got a leaking oil well in Piccadilly Bay. And there's nothing being done about that. And nobody's talking about it. We got illegal dumping going on every, everywhere. Who cares about that? But yet, there's something good for the area, positive. They want to shut it down. Sure, get the studies, but don't stop this project. And you talk about studies right? all the over the... people here don't care how many studies they put in place. Some of them don't care. You can have studies and on positive right to the yin-yang. They still will say no. 
it's branded into them. But you're talking about studies all over the country. There's only one similar proposal anywhere in the country. There's just one in Nova Scotia. So what studies are you talking about? Well, you mean, to, how did the other windmills get up across in Alberta? Oh, it's not just wind. I mean, we understand wind energy, and wind energy is not new, but this is different than simply that. Yes, it's a hydrogen, but they still have to use wind towers. Yeah, but the, the difference Whatever is... Whatever source they use it for. But the difference is pretty clear, though, isn't it, though, Sam, if we're being fair, is other places that have the wind farms in play, they are using the power from the wind energy where they live. It's domestic use. It's uh, uh, the proximity yes. to the power. And this is this is different. Old, yes. Right? I mean, even on that basis, even on that basis mean, alone... I'm oh, sure right. that uh, the government is getting revenue just from this here. Some of the revenue doesn't even kick in until they recover all the capital costs as well, which is part of the conversation here. So when we're talking about viability, and again, I just ask questions. I'm not saying, oh, shut this down. This cannot happen. We're just talking about both sides of the uh, issue, something that we're, it's very new, and getting it right is extremely important. So one of, of the big differences is, oh, agree. my God. All agree. right, Sam, final thoughts. Go ahead. Yes, I do agree it has to be done right. But I'm certain, you mean, the government's going to have their, 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 their people in place to, to watch the environment and, and to watch any concern to, to make sure there's no issues going on with this project. But in, in every industry, in every industry, there's always problems. In every industry. Not in all, but in just about every industry. So, you mean, if they can eliminate every problem in every industry, we would not have no economic development. We would not have no construction. We would have nothing. And I mean, I worked on uh, many projects, the Hebron, uh, Muskrat Falls, I worked across Canada, I worked at Syncrude. You mean, I traveled, I worked, plus I farm home. I got to work, I can't sustain alone up to farming because most farmers got second jobs, right? But you mean, that's how it is. But we got to do it with precaution, like you said, it got to be done right. And certainly we should get something out of it. You mean, I do agree, you mean, the people should fight for what we can get not fight to stop the project. I appreciate the time, Sam. Uh, thanks for calling this morning. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Doug Poss is in the queue. We were talking with Mark earlier, to kick off the show, as a matter of fact, about what is or what is not being done regarding the tent encampment behind the colonial building. There is a committee struck. I don't know if Mark's focus is on governmental intervention and or other groups that we know are working on the problem. Doug Poss is one of those people. He's right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Pawson. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for making time for me. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah, I just wanted to call in just to talk a bit about encampment responses. Um, I know there's lots of there's always lots of concern about the folks who are there, and, and it's really good to see the public's attention being raised to it. Um, but I, I think it's really important to just talk a bit about sort of some of the responses that are, are happening. And, and I just want to frame it up in, in, in two ways. So one is like the bigger picture context. Like you and I have had, you know, many conversations about, you know, the issues related to poverty, the lack of investments in housing, the lack of investments in mental health and addiction services and supports. Those are big systemic issues. And when they fail, it impacts folks uh, very acutely and often those who are, are most vulnerable, both vulnerable from a health perspective, but vulnerable to the system for their survival. So I just want to say we, we, we've talked a lot about that. It's important to talk about that. But I also want to talk about 
those individuals who, when they are, you know, falling through the cracks, the responses that are happening, uh, because they do happen and they, they often go unseen and unrecognized and, and that's by design. So I just wanted to talk a bit about, about that and help answer any questions that folks might have about that. You and I have been talking about these issues for years. It's amazing how different the conversation feels today. And I would suppose it's by design that when they chose to set up their tents on Confederation Hill, it changed the temperature of the conversation because this is not new. People being homeless is not a new uh, issue here in this city or anywhere in this province or country. But I think that it just got that real hyper focus simply because of the proximity of the tents to the seat of government. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's it's nothing new for for folks around the uh, for communities around the country, um, and it's been less visible here in St. John's. Just to give you an example, you know, our outreach team and the harm reduction team with uh, NL Health Services, they visited uh, over 25 sites where folks have been rough sleeping throughout the year. So, so it, it's not just one or two places. This is this is a bigger issue, and it's growing. But what happened, yeah, as you as you pointed out, when it when it you know was across from Confederation building, it became you know uh, a political protest, and, and which continues today. And I think it's really important to talk about encampments in those ways because, you know, the thing that we wanted we always want to make sure is that folks are safe in those situations, right? So we want to make sure we know, you know, as a part of an encampment response, just here's sort of a, a formulaic approach to it. Who are the organizers? What are their experiences with individuals experiencing homelessness? What are their, what are their intentions or motivations? You know, sometimes around the country we've seen folks set up encampments um, who, are, who are attached to criminal rings and elements, right? So that's not the case here, but you always want to make sure that, that safety and public safety is paramount. And so when we talk with our partners, whether it's in, in NL housing or income support or community organizations, um, it's always in the interest of making sure folks can get connected, making sure uh, Confederation building and, and including what's happening out of Colonial is just making sure that folks are connected to the system. So if they're not, we want to make sure that they have you know, a housing application filled out. We want to make sure that they have their income supports and health benefits um, available to them. We want to make sure that if they do need case management support, that that they're connected. And, and you know, three quarters of the folks at Colonial Building are connected to supports in the community. So our role is really making sure that those coordination efforts are happening. And our outreach team and our and the harm reduction team are pivotal to that. Um, so they're there daily, and along with other community resources. But they don't they don't really broadcast. We're going to be here at this time, or they're not wearing jackets that are going to talk about that, uh, or they're not going to post on social media, because they're there to serve those folks who are experiencing homelessness, not necessarily the organizers. And, and oftentimes, you kind of have to wait for the organizers to leave so that folks can feel comfortable to talk to those supports. So it's really important to know that there is an approach to this. There is a coordinated effort to this. It just doesn't get broadcast through social media. And just a good example would be a couple of days ago, we had folks who were, who were, um, uh, with our outreach team was able to go and bring a couple of folks down to housing to get keys to a home, right? So, like, there's good things that are happening. It just doesn't get, we don't post it on social media. And, and I've explained that to, to Mark earlier as well, like a couple of days ago. You know, I know he's, he's talked about the harm reduction van, and, I, and I've explained to him and others the reason why that doesn't, you don't see that in those locations is because people, including Mark himself, have posted photos, and it makes those places unsafe for staff and for clients to use. But the nurses are there. The nurses are there with their supplies. They're there with community partners and agencies. Th those responses are happening, and I, you know, I just want to make sure folks understand that 
yes, there's the big political issues that are happening and conversations that need to happen with the ministers and the mayors and whatnot. But at an operational level, that work is very much happening. And we're seeing a lot of folks get connected into supports and services so that they can avail of those case management supports when they need it. So, like, who would be some of the, not by name, but, you know, representing what type of organizations are some of the people doing the support work on site? Who are they? So we we have an outreach team that goes out and connects with individuals there, just making sure that they're doing okay um, and, you know, in the encampment themselves. The harm reduction team through NL Health Services, they have a clinic on, on Monday Pond Road. And so in addition to all of the work that our teams are doing across the community, there's there's visits daily happening at Colonial uh, and there were at Confederation. When I see folks from government, some see folks like income support uh, or NL housing fo- uh, folks there, and uh, community partners, so Gathering Place, Dallas Circle, Choices, uh, John Howard, a number of organizations that are, are providing those basic services like you know Thrive and their outreach, they're going to be there to support those individuals uh, when they're connected to folks. And if folks aren't connected but want to be, we're going to support that connection to an organization and support, whether that's a housing case manager or some other type of support. So so there's a, there's a, a community response that is happening. It's just, again, like I said, it, it doesn't get broadcast through social media. I'm not going to call in every week to tell you about what we're doing, but just I just want to reassure folks that there is a response, and it's happening operationally day to day. In addition to the bigger advocacy efforts that, we, that we're all trying to push towards, uh, working with our governments to, to ensure more supports and more housing is available. You know, I don't think, any, well, I can't speak for everybody, I don't expect there to be long-term solutions created overnight because, if, like we talked to the Canadian Home Builders Association yesterday, even when we try to find permanent solutions, they're not there today. So how we deal with the interim is going to be key. And I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I appreciate the, the information you're sharing this morning. Would you like to say anything else, Doug, before we take a break for the news? Yeah, thanks for thanks for making time for the conversations with Mark, with myself, and with others. It, it's really important to know what's happening, and I'm always uh, happy to talk to anybody that's interested in learning more. So thanks again, Patty. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time, Doug. Take good care. Yep. Okay, bye-bye. It's Doug Possum, Executive Director at End Homelessness St. John's. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Let me go back, Chris, in the queue to talk about the airport. I'm assuming that's the Stephenville Airport, and Diane wants to talk about bulk pickup. What is that about? We'll find out. Don't go away. Dial a Carol in support of the VOCM Cares Foundation Sunday, November 26th, starting at 1 p.m. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Diane, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I'm coming to you with a problem. Uh oh. Uh, I live in a one bedroom apartment. My brother is giving me a sofa. But I, I'm not allowed to put the old sofa outside. I don't have money for someone to come pick it up. The city isn't taking any more appointments until April. So I called the city because when Andy was there and when Dennis was there, if you had a problem, they did their best to help to help you. So anyway, after waiting since yesterday for a phone call, and I had to call twice more, I finally got it while I was waiting for you. They don't have the equipment to pick it up. I guess they must have destroyed all their pickups, and I'm around the corner from them. Yeah, I mean, I know bulk pickup is by appointment. It starts in May in one area and sometime in mid-June, so you're right. That opportunity has come and gone. So I guess what you're looking for here this morning, Diane, is for someone who might be able to pick it up for you. Well, that would be fantastic, but I got no money. 
Yeah, you know, every now and then when people call with a problem, someone will, you know, uh, perk up and say, well, I mean, I got a truck and I'm in the area. I can pick it up and maybe deal with it on your behalf. And I don't know if that's going to happen in this case, Diane, but obviously you're somewhere in Center City. Yes, I'm right here on Mount Pleasant Avenue. Mount Pleasant Avenue. Okay, so that's the plea going out. If anybody has a truck and the capacity to help Diane out today, would you mind if we share your number? If they call us, we'll tell them to call you to set up a time or what have you? No, go right ahead. Okay, so I don't know what's going to happen, but we put the pitch out there for you, and let's see if we get any takers. Okay, I have one more thing to comment if you have time, Patty. Sure I do. Go ahead. It's the uh, home care situation. Uh Uh-huh. I went on home care in uh, May. I've had five home care workers. Three were foreign girls who weren't used to doing things the Canadian way. And I used to say to the lady who owned it, why don't you train them? She said, then I'd never be here. I said, good enough. So the fourth one she sent, she was excellent. And I wouldn't, it was really hot out then still in September, and I wouldn't ask her to do anything that I wouldn't do in extreme heat, so she just did, like, minor stuff. And she said, you'll have no trouble getting work out of me when the weather cools off. The last Friday in September, she sat down, and she said how miserable she felt. I said, why don't you go down to Emerge? She said, I've gone down there twice like this, and they sent me home. There was nothing wrong. So I don't know if she went that weekend or not, but she passed away that Sunday. 45 years old. Terribly sad. Isn't it? And then the next one I have was really nice. Only she had two jobs and she preferred to work the other job. So now I'm getting away from the the businesses with the home care and I'm trying to go private. So if there's anyone out there that can use 15 hours work and be paid by Eastern Health and don't mind working they have a job if they call me someone just gave me a suggestion for an outfit that might be able to help you out with the couch and someone already connected with me and said that they uh, can do it if they can find someone to help lift it so I'm going to give you another number that you can call and see if they might be able to do something for you I don't know if they provide a pickup service but I'll give you the number anyway how about that Thank you. So call uh, it's called Home Gain Furniture Bank. I'm unsure of their exact process, but they might have a home for this particular couch. Uh, so it's 325? Uh, 325. 4040. 4040. Four, yeah. Yeah, and all the people I got for that um, home care job were all gig people. They can work for cash, but they can't have a check from Eastern Health. And why would that be? I'm sorry? Well... Uh, one had an injury, another one was on EI, or two were on EI. So uh, I need someone who wants a legitimate job. Okay, so that much, I'm not sure what we can do, but when you when we hang up, don't you call that number I gave you right away? I will. I, no, just wait one second, uh, give it a breath between, because when we hang up, uh, I think there's a guy who's going to be calling you right away who's going to be able to help you out for sure. So uh, expect a call okay, from... Okay, I'll wait five minutes. Yeah, wait five minutes, because I'm sending him your number right there with that click, and so when we say goodbye, you'll be getting a call from this gentleman here who's a terrific guy. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome, Diane. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Chris Bruce. You're on the air. Hey, Batty, how you doing today? Doing fine, thanks. How you doing? 
Oh, you know, I'm 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 doing good. I was feeling like pretty uh, pretty frivolous because I was reading about drones in the airport all morning. Um, you, you know, but the the last few calls are are all kind of really pretty serious and. Uh, and I think speak to a lot of the challenges that are happening in the province right now. Um, you, you know, like, so so I live on the West Coast, and, you know, I, I really appreciate, say, Sam's call and his, you know, his, his very emphatic plea that, you know, we, we need something out here. And, and I think people are, are right when they make that call. And and when they, you know, see that we there's a lot of like hurting people out here and and in town and, and you know so 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 when people are desperate, I think they do very strange things, and I think that's kind of what brings us to where the airport is right now. Um, uh, if, if listeners don't know. Um, uh, a tip is a great thing, and it publishes all kinds of documents. And so currently, there is several hundred pages of documents and correspondence between uh, 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 Tom Rose, the mayor who was on, and uh, Carl Diamond and the Steve Mill Airport Corporation. And it's uh, it's it's a lot of documents. It's a lot to take in. Uh, and you know, a bunch of it is just guys trying to do their job and not having enough money to do it and not having opportunities to offer to their community and uh, to not get the support other places get. And, and you know, a lot of it is, is kind of very actually heartbreaking to read. Um, because I want to see the West Coast do good. You want to give us some specifics of your concerns or questions? Yeah, yeah. So, so you did raise a really, really good one to Tom about um, uh, uh, one of the board members being told he's not on the board anymore. Um, that's a very unusual thing to do. The Steve Mill Airport Corporation is a not-for-profit uh, entity. Uh, the town is not supposed to do that, as far as I know. That's my understanding, and per the emails, that was the understanding of the chair at the time as well. Um, that would not be the last time uh, pressure would come on the board. Uh, I, I, I haven't gotten to tweeting that part yet, several hundred pages of documents. Um, but uh, there was further threats against uh, sabotage, from board members um, uh, directed towards, you know, unnamed people. Uh, but, I, you know, there's context clues that one could glean from it. Um, the, uh, the name of the airport was changed, like all the branding, and the board did not know about it and was informed by their employee. So there's kind of this, you know, uh, backward seeming relationship where the employees of the town and the airport uh, were working to further Carl's goals rather than the public's goals. Um, 
it and, and you know people kind of talk about how there is sort of a rigged game or you know it, it's not what you know it's who you know and and this is a really kind of biting example of you know just some dude making a couple emails uh, impressing the right people and very literally per Tom's own words being given the key to the city uh, he, he was given all the resources that they could muster to further his ends and and you know maybe Tom is right that that is his job that as the mayor that's his responsibility but if that is what our politicians are supposed to do, which I don't think it is, I don't think everyone's agreed on that. But if it is, like, I, I know he was trying to help his community, but there seems to be like a four day lag on when he found out about it and really started to push it. And, and if that's all it takes to get. You know, former uh, MHA Kevin Aylward on board, uh, the town's resources, uh, you know, that that's bad for everyone in the province that is honestly trying to make a go at it. And, you, you know, like, I, I don't really like the whole wind energy thing. In in this context, I think the turbines are too big. I think it's just just a you know I don't think it makes sense. But I can completely understand why people you know see we need to take a risk, and and I get that. And I'm just I suppose I'm saddened that this is the risk that the town has taken, and it seems like it has been a a major squandering of public resources and a loss of a major public good. You know, like politics in general, campaigns in particular, you know, I harken back to the late Tim Rossert, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, that's his words. Uh, of course, people know that. So yeah. when people are hungry for jobs and need a prosperous shot in the arm, you know, that jumps to the forefront for a lot of people's minds, for better or worse, but, but that's the reality because we'll have yeah. people out there who are, their go-to concern will be the environment, others will be education and healthcare and taxes and jobs, but the economy drives votes in large part and it drives decision making and supportive proposals in large part I would think that is a fair statement to make uh, Chris before they flag me off to the break which I'm late for anything else you'd like to say um, I, I I would just in particular encourage the residents of Stephenville to take the time and read the ATIPA documents themselves and ask in, in a non-judgmental way and a non-critical way of your neighbors and of the people who want different things than you to 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 please consider what good governance might look like and if this is it and if this is what you want appreciate your time chris thanks for doing this thank you so much patty thank you you take care bye-bye all right let's take a break uh, we've been talking about the expansion of virtual care and the 22 million dollar two-year teledoc contract one of the local bids came from medicuro of course coming in at about 3.5 million so about a third of the cost so dr todd young is in the queue he's behind medicuro and also at main street medical out in springdale dr young right after this don't go away 
Welcome back to the show. As advertised on us on line number six is the gentleman behind Medicuro in the Main Street Medical Clinic in Springdale. That's Dr. Todd Young. Good morning, Dr. Young. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Have you had a chance yet to uh, discuss with government and the procurement uh, group about how your bid fell short or didn't check all the boxes regarding the contract that was eventually awarded to Teladoc? No, we've uh, reached out to them. I think we're still working on a date to sit with them. Uh, So I think you have an option. You can get a a written response or you can uh, actually chat with someone, I guess, to, uh, to go over that. So we're hoping within the next week or two that we will have that opportunity. In the world of virtual care, of course, it's not necessarily real brand new here in the province. You've been doing it for a while. The health services itself has some virtual options available. Folks will say, look, it's never going to replace the gold standard, which is an in-person visit, and fair enough. And they say, well, you know, not everything is going to be able to be dealt with virtually. What kind of ills and ailments do you most regularly see, and where does it become the need to move on to an in-person visit or emergency room visit? So how does virtual care work, and what kind of issues are you dealing with? Well, we deal with, uh, of course, across the spectrum, I would say, you know, uh, all age groups, different variety of, uh, of illness process. Uh, you know, I, I guess I always say it's kind of the trick of the trade. Uh, you, you know, when you see someone, uh, there are certain things certainly that are definitely not appropriate to see virtually that would need an hands-on physical exam. Uh, there are so- certain things where that we would need to arrange to be seen uh, face-to-face, and that's one of the benefits of what we were able to offer. You know, we have uh, physicians across the province, so within a day or two or even same day in some uh, circumstances, if I have someone that I see and I'm like, you know what, this is uh, virtual care, this is not appropriate, you need to see someone face-to-face, I'll message uh, our um, our team of physicians, and uh, it's never been a person has never been able not to be seen. So we've always been able to uh, arrange that appropriate care. Episodic illnesses are important. Lots of mental health, uh, chronic disease management. You know, those are that's probably about fifty, sixty percent of what we see there. Any level of concern regarding just the vast disparity between your bid and Teladoc and even the the presence of an American-based company, although with a Canadian subsidiary getting this contract? You know, so, of course, I am uh, concerned. I guess, you know, there are decision-makers that we have appointed in our province to take health care in the direction that it's leading. Uh, you know, uh, on my end, I consider myself a bit of an entrepreneur and an innovative type uh, person. You know, I always uh, would like to see things that we know are working and have been working to uh, to continue to be a part of, of providing health care in our province. Uh, the need continues to be great. My fear, of course, is that we're fragmenting care more than ever, which I think we need to go back to basics a little bit. Um, You know, uh, patients need to know where they can go for care. with with Teladoc, Teladoc is a good company. It's uh, you know an international company. Uh, as a taxpayer, I guess I guess you know on the on the outside look at any time though, I just am concerned that you know this is money that's leaving our province and not staying in our province. And I guess that philosophically is a little different than what I uh, would uh, would support. But again, these are decision makers that have made the decision and. I'll support and roll with the, the vision that they have for healthcare in our province and uh, adapt accordingly. Dr. Young, did you happen to hear our conversation with uh, Minister Osborne the other day? 
Yeah, I did. What did you make of his answer regarding the cap on virtual visits at 40 per day? I really couldn't wrap my mind around it. I asked the question twice, but I wasn't entirely sure of what his answer meant. You? I, I really couldn't uh, clearly. Um, actually, I, you know, I, Minister Osborne is, and, and I've had some really good conversations. Uh, we've had some, some great conversations about virtual care, and he's been a, been a good listener, I think. And I think I'm not sure where where the the thought process comes from, but there's still the thinking that if you see more than 40 people a day, you're not likely to see anybody in your office. I guess that's what it comes down to, right? That you're going to always do virtual uh, instead of doing in-person care. There's a few sort of things that are uh, that need to be sort of highlighted with regards to that. Uh, you know. Everyone that I know works for Medicare, which we, we see probably more virtual than a lot of other physicians, every single one of them uh, works pretty much in another office. I think there's one or two special circumstances uh, that may not see a lot of in-person care, but everybody else does in-person care. Um, the other thing is the college, of course, requires that you know, they, they say to physicians, you cannot just see virtual care to be a licensed physician in, in Newfoundland. You need to be able to, to do both. Um, and and I, so I think the idea is that there's a fear from, from, the, uh, from the Department of Health that physicians will gravitate to just virtual care, but I haven't seen that. I mean, I think uh, there's there's things in place to prevent that from happening. I think, you know, most physicians I know don't want to just do virtual care. They, they enjoy seeing people in the office as well. When people uh, connect with Medicuro to get an appointment, I remember reading that the turnaround time was 24 hours. What is it, what is it like realistically? So for, it depends on the level of service. So, I mean, we do different, we've diversified. We have, you know, some people need certain uh, assistance with some services that may take, uh, you know, a couple of days to um, to connect with. Uh, in general, though, for episodic illnesses and, and people who are running out of medications and things where a pharmacist can no longer extend, uh, you know, 24 to 48 hours probably. We still do a lot of same day. So, and again, our volume fluctuates. Actually, this week, what's happened, <laughs> to our surprise, I mean, we the, the number of requests have gone through the roof, probably just because the name has been out there a bit more in the media. Uh, so we the, this week, realistically, it, it probably is a couple of days. Fair enough. And is it all just direct billing for of MCP? Yeah, so... So again, the difference between Medicuro, of course, and larger corporations like Teladoc is, you know, I didn't get into this to make uh, money. Uh, you know, I use it the same as every other physician. It's a, a way of connecting a healthcare provider to uh, a patient who needs care. Uh, you know, we've had a very low profit margin. Uh, you know, Teladoc is a large company, $640 million profit in the last quarter, publicly traded, shareholders to make happy. Uh, our priority has been to make patients happy and uh, try and deliver uh, care for those who do, who do not have a physician or do not have a nurse practitioner uh, to, uh, you know, to try and, and bridge, the, bridge the gap there, as it were. Uh, just a comment about the cap. I mean, uh, the cap is not part of the the, the other the the teledoc uh, RFP and things, and or even part of that RFP. There was no cap involved in that at all. So, you know, a physician can see 
there's no minimum and there's no maximum number of patients that a physician would need to see because they're paid uh, an hourly rate uh, through uh, MCP or sorry, through the department and MCP is not being built. So this new arrangement, there is no cap. We're still stuck with the cap. Medicare, it's still distinctly, um, you know, we're we're still under a cap agreement through the Department of Health. And there doesn't seem to be any movement on that. It's kind of, you know, I've I've kind of done what I can to advocate for that. I I don't really see the rationale behind it. The NLMA is in support of removing the cap, and they've been trying to lobby for that as well. Is Medicare staff made up of uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, or LPNs, or what's the staffing makeup look like? So my vision for healthcare. I mean, I was a nurse practitioner and a, and a nurse many years ago. So you know, my vision of healthcare has always been a core interdisciplinary team, and so that's the team that we have put together. So you know, I'll give you an example. The other day, we had a, a patient that I saw on Medicare. She had acute uh, pain uh, related to a rib injury. Um, you know, I was able to, within a few hours, have our virtual physiotherapist see her by video. She was able to give her some uh, key tips uh, right away to kind of alleviate some of that pain, all from the comfort of her home, linked with the pharmacist that we have uh, on their Medicare about certain medications. And so, again, we have nurse practitioners, physicians, we have uh, three or four counselors, we've made connections with uh, different allied health uh, physio, uh, we now have a speech uh, pathologist that's going to be coming on board. And, and again, it's, it's amazing how that team has worked together, we communicate well together, and uh, oh, but everyone's focused on the patient, everyone's focused on the need. Um, and, that's my philosophy for our publicly funded health care is to, to keep the patient focused. I appreciate the time, Dr. Young. I just have to get to the news very quickly, but would you like to add anything else? No, not just uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. And again, you know, I just hope at the end of the day that, you know, I believe that every new planner and Labradorian should be connected to a provider. And uh, and that's, uh, that's something that we support. That's what new planners and Labradorians deserve. Appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend, Doc. Take care. Bye now. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Todd Young. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, ambulances. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jerry, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Uh, just turned in off uh, Tops Road onto Kelsey Drive, and there was a grey GMC pickup last about 10 or 12, 2 by 3. So I got out and uh, placed them there on the sidewalk. Well, I'm sure they're going to miss them when they get to their destination, so you just put them right there where you found them on the road, put them on sidewalk. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Good on you for getting it out of the way, the oncoming traffic, Jerry. So, folks, if you are dr- the owner of that truck and you bounced out about 10 sticks of 2 by 3 Jerry, put him on the sidewalk for you. Good man. Anything okay. else, Jerry? No, that's it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Right, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's good. How about you? Good, sir. I had a call this morning. I had a constituent call me yesterday afternoon from the Trapassi area. A very concerning issue. Uh, ambulance uh, call from Trapassi to St. Shots. And on the turn down to St. Shots, what they call the junction, the ambulance dropped his dry shaft right there in the road. 
So the uh, person that calls, the daughter of the person that, uh, you know, the call was for, and, you know, very concerned. The ambulance has 475,000 kilometres on it. Somebody picked up the ambulance attendant that was going to St. Shots and brought him to the call, and the other attendant waited for another ambulance that came from St. Mary's. You know, it's a very concerning uh, issue for the people in the district, you know, when they're in these ambulances, and, and you're looking at a vehicle like at 475,000 kilometres. So I think, you know, something that the government got to start looking at and, and looking at the conditions of these vehicles that are on the road. Now, I know that could happen to any day. You know, you could fix a vehicle and the next day something happened, but, you know, I'm just, uh, they're, they're unsure about the conditions of these vehicles. Well, as they should be. I mean, we've got rules in place for age of and the number of kilometres allowed on a school bus, for instance. I don't know why we wouldn't have certain parameters regarding vehicle roadworthiness for ambulances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we went through that last week and, uh, you know, uh, same thing with buses and, you know, dropped an axle last year and then they came out with some uh, more inspections and took some vehicles off the road. I mean, I wonder, I don't know the protocol for ambulances right now, but I do have a call into the minister's office to check and see how often they're inspected. You know, is, is it inspected by the provincial government? And after that, you know, I, I know that on the buses, when we when we dug into it, they inspected them every six months, the people that own them. And then the government got to go in and inspect them after that once a year. But I'm not sure on the ambulance issue and, you know, and how many kilometres got to be on it before it comes out of the fleet. You know, so it's a very concerning issue for the people in the district and the condition of these ambulances when they're showing up. So, you know, the government got to get on this and, and, and be looking at this a little more closely for sure. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, because if I'm in an ambulance, it's obviously for a reason. I, it could be patient transport where, you know, time is not necessarily of the essence because it's not an emergency situation. But in an emergency, to drop a, dri- drop a drive shaft sounds like a pretty serious matter to me. Well, you know, they were making a turn and the shaft came out. That's fine. What if you're going 80 or 90 kilometers? They can only go a certain speed and that drops out and digs into the road. Who knows what could happen? But, you know, it's very concerning to have these uh, vehicles like this. And I'm sure they're not all like that. But, you know, there's got to be certain things in place that they got to check this out and see where this went wrong for sure. And, you know, it's very concerning. People are concerned in the district and they make the concerns known to you and they make these calls. And, you know, it's very disturbing to get a call in uh, Thursday afternoon, 2.30, 3 o'clock. And, you know, this happens as well. And that's that's unbelievable. I'll dig into that a little bit myself. But just out of curiosity, uh, do you happen to know the status? It was announced back in August that the government had awarded contracts to three different groups, total almost $600,000. Consultants brought in healthcare strategists, Life Flight, which is an American company, and another one called RFP Solutions, to look at consolidating the, 16, uh, the 60 different ambulance contracts. Do you happen to know where we are? No, I don't, Patty. You know, I haven't had anybody, you know, reach out or let us know, but I can certainly check that myself as well. But, uh, you know, certainly haven't heard anything. Same as the last year when we had the ambulance issue, when we went from two to one and they were going to put a rapid response unit in the area because there was only one in Cape Royal. And same thing, you know, you had to ask the question. After they make a statement, you still have to ask to find out where is two, where is it stationed, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's concerning for the people in the district, especially when only one ambulance in Trapassi and it'd be that many kilometers on it, and, and something like that happened, is very concerning, right? Interesting. I'll dig into it myself as well, because, you know, standards for school buses, you would assume that would apply to a variety of the government fleet and or private ambulance fleet, because that's obviously not good enough. So I'll see what I can find out as well on both fronts. Uh, anything else this morning? 
No, that's fine, Patty. Thank you, and appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Take care, Loyola. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, right. Patty. Bye-bye. PC member from Fairland is Loyola O'Driscoll. And, you know, when we went to the budget lock-in, one of the very few new things that hadn't already been announced was exactly that, $9 million, if I remember correctly, for the consolidation of 60 road ambulance services into a single integrated service when we don't know exactly what that means. You know, very likely the old hub-and-spoke approach that will be taken. We don't know if that's going to mean more or fewer ambulances, more or fewer paramedics, but it's uh, that's a big deal. Uh, before we get to the break, let's uh, talk about a fundraiser at the Manuals River Interpretation Center. Join us on line number two is Michael Harris. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. How you doing today, Patty? Grand today. How about you? Oh, pretty good. So this weekend at Manuals River, we're having our last holiday market of the year. It's our big fundraiser. We pull off to uh, get some fundraising done for the end of the year. Of course, um, anyone have attended our markets before, we usually have about 40 vendors there. This time, we're going to have about 42 vendors, everything from... Uh, Christmas crafts to jewelry all the way to trading cards and fortune reading. So it's going to be a quite interesting event. Uh, that takes place uh, this Sunday, November 26th. Opens up at uh, 10 a.m. and we're running it till 4 p.m. So how do you guys make money? Just charge per table and do you take that as your fundraising effort? So we do a, a charge per table on all our vendors, just a flat rate. And then we ask that anyone coming in, admission is by donation. So anything someone can give or anything that you want to give us towards Manuals River, that's how we make a little bit more on top of that. So it, it really greatly helps us out. Uh, we had a great response from the community last time, so we decided one more market before the year is over. Why not? I appreciate the time. Would you like to add any further details, Michael? Um, no further details, but starting on December 1st, because I get a lot of questions about this in the run of a day, our Manuals River Light Walk, which is taken care of by the town of CBS, uh, is taking place. That's at uh, 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily, and they usually run that up until uh, around Christmas time, and all the trails around Manuals River are lit up with some beautiful festive lights. I've been there. It's brilliant. Uh, good on you, Michael. Keep up the good work, and good luck this weekend. Thank you, Patty. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. That's Michael Harris with the Manuals River Interpretation Center. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning, final break of the week. John's in the queue to talk about the explosion we saw at the uh, Rainbow Bridge, the uh, border crossing there at Niagara Falls, and then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Helpful information coming in from a listener regarding the ambulances, the age of the fleet and kilometers on. So here we go. Uh, they have 10 years or 500,000 kilometers, whichever comes first. They are inspected by a certified garage every six months and inspected by the Motor Vehicle Department, Highway Enforcement Officers every six months. So that's the status on the ambulance issue. Uh, let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I was in the morning. I just I get a, usually get up in the morning early, and I just turned on the news channel from C, uh, CS, CBC. Okay. And while I'm watching the news, this she just, she cuts in and says, "Oh, breaking news! Breaking news!" She said, "There was a fire uh, uh, vehicle bomb at the Rainbow Bridge," and she didn't know they didn't know how how much damage was done, who was killed. Or they weren't sure which what the motive was, and I'm sure then they scattered uh, a, a team from Toronto probably to 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 rush down there to that scene, and you know there was a man and a woman, a man and his wife. He probably had a uh, some kind of a medical problem and his foot accelerated the 
the car. She went over an embankment and caught fire, and two of them were cremated. You know, it's the way that they was brought down first and the radio was was ridiculous. Well, it was a pretty massive explosion. I I don't I don't well, know why. No, no, someone I contradict you there, what? because there was a there was a, a, a man that was right on site and he seen it all. He said there was no explosion. He said the car just went up in the air, big lot of smoke, and then she caught fire. Well, and in the world of facts, they did not find any explosive materials. So, no, they didn't, no. So fair enough. You know, it also saw some pretty knee-jerk reactions, even in the world of politics. So it happens. And the prime minister leaves question period. And as a government, something like that at a border crossing... As an operational necessity, you have to be concerned and curious as to why or how or what motivation might have been behind it. But then immediately, Mr. Poliev said it was terrorism. So, I mean, we just, we get caught up in trying to be the first one with the most dramatic take on every issue before we even know what happened or any investigation, and it's just not good enough. You got that right on the button, buddy. They want to be the first one, the first one to, to, whether it's right or wrong, you know. And uh, sometimes, and not very often I agree with Donald Trump, but like he says, a lot of the news is false news. Well, people just have to be careful when we talk about things as drastic or as dire as an act of terrorism. I mean, seriously. So when it happens at the border, people will have their spidey sense is tingling but you don't have to let your spidey sense tingle lead to your tongue so we've just got to be a little bit more cautious on the most serious matters well i think we should you know we should check things check things out first before you broadcast it all over the national news you know with breaking news and stuff like this because the way things are today you know anyway i was i was disgusted with it after well, for better or worse, the first piece of information that people hear is, for many, that'll be exactly what they think is real and is right and is accurate, when oftentimes it's simply not the case. So, you know, whether it be immediate reactions to stories we hear from Ukraine or Gaza or at the Rainbow Bridge, sometimes it's worthwhile to take a deep breath and make sure we know exactly what we're talking about before we fly off the handle. So that's all I really have to say on that one. I know. It is. It's too bad that people don't stop, just take a second and sit back and look and see, make sure what they're talking about. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I didn't pass any comments or judgment on it because I had no idea what happened. So when they investigate, and now they've reopened the bridge to traffic in both directions. We've heard from the governor of New York. We've heard from uh, our federal government. There's been lots of mischaracterization. I probably shouldn't have used the word explosion. It just fell out of my mouth. But then I hopefully clarified by saying there was no explosive uh, materials found on site. It was just one of those things when it happens at a border crossing, people get stressed uh for better or worse so anything else this morning john no that's it <laughs> appreciate the time i want to get it out of my chest fair enough you're welcome to do it here thank you you're welcome bye-bye all right. all right let's go to line number one veronica you're on the air hi patty hi there uh first time caller so i'm a bit nervous you take your time go right ahead okay um i want to call uh with an issue I'm I'm having with my husband, a medical issue. Okay. Uh, he's a diabetic, and I'll I'll say he has a diabetic toe. 
his his toe has been uh, this has been going on for 10 months and his toe is so bad now we feel it needs to be amputated and uh, we've made numerous trips to emerge and he's been put on antibiotics after antibiotics and all they tell him it has to rot off i i can't believe when they said that like rot off they said they're just going to let nature take its course as opposed to medical intervention yeah that's right you know he's a serious diabetic he takes four or five needles a day he's a a stroke victim plus other other uh, medical issues and he's seen a vascular surgeon from st john's and uh, last month we we were told that the, the vascular surgeon would contact someone in Stephenville uh, uh, or Cornerbrook, uh, uh, a surgeon, I guess, so he could have the work done. His toe is presently so bad, you can actually smell it. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, the last time they were at the hos- we were at the hospital, um, they actually gave him antibiotics with something in it so it would, you know, cover the smell. Uh, you know, I can't believe that in 2023... Oh, just a second, please. Uh, uh, this is the mess of our medical situation. You know, we've worked hard all our lives. We're, we're seniors. We've paid our taxes. And to be treated like this as senior citizens, and they expect us to to accept this. This is how the, the medical services works. Uh, we've had at times had to wait nine hours at a time to be told his toe has to rot off. I, I We're just like, we're at wit's end. Uh, we don't know what else to do. And... Uh, I'm afraid if nothing is done soon, he will lose his foot. Or are they going? Or or are they going to say to us, "Oh, his foot. Oh, that'll have to rot off too," before anything is done. We need help. We need intervention. We need someone to please contact us. Some medical professional, anyway. I really don't understand. I've never heard the like, to be honest with you. No, well, like, first when I heard it, when I was told it has to rot off, like, coming from a doctor, I just about, like, we were, like, shocked. It's it's terrible. I mean, I, I, I can't count now the number of times I've had them to emerge. I, it's, it's just terrible. It's not getting any better. So, like, could I leave my number after we're off the air? So, I, Dave has your number. Pardon? David has your number, the fellow you spoke with already. Yeah, but uh, I'm calling from a different phone, so okay. I, I need to give him my my uh, my number. Okay, well, why don't I put you on hold and you can give it to David, okay? Okay. Let's do exactly that, and good luck. Keep me in the loop. Yes, well, I will, Patty. I just want to, to let let people know out there what's happening in in our medical situation. No problem at all. You're going to speak with David now. You can share your number with him. Okay. Okay, good luck. Thanks, okay. Veronica. Okay, there you go, David. There she is. Final word goes to line number three. Carol, you're on the air. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. No I have a big birthday announcement to make. Let's hear it. My father, Joseph LeBlanc, from Brooklyn, Bonavista Bay, will be 98 tomorrow. 
and we're going to have open house for him and anybody wants to drop in have a cup of tea or pat him on the back or do whatever he is quite a remarkable man he had eight children eight grandchildren nine great-grandchildren and seven great-great-grandchildren so he's amazing. still pretty good amazing i'm sorry what's your dad's first name Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, Joseph LeBlanc. Well, the happiest of birthdays to Joseph. I suppose there'll be a big crowd around for the 98th. I sure hope so. <clears throat> He's a very special man. He had some health issues back in, in February. We thought we were going to lose him, but uh, he's still alive and kicking. And he, he, he drives four-wheeler. He, he gets a bit of wood when he when he feels like it. He, he put in his own garden this year and, and dug his potatoes and... and it's quite remarkable. We don't think he's 98. <laughs> he sounds quite spry. So a big special hello. Uh, good morning to uh, Joseph. And happy birthday, sir. And thank you for telling us about it, Carol. A great way to polish off the week. Thank you, my dear, very, very much. My pleasure. Enjoy the weekend. Bye. Okay. Bye. Here we go. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, good show today. Big thanks to all hands. Support the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.